Hi, and welcome to Catalogs and Noise again. My name is Joe. I'm here with Dave, Josh, and we are here to talk about the very long Cersei chapter oh, of God. Ulysses. Yeah, it's heavy. Uh, it's really heavy. I want to kind of jump right in because there's a lot to talk about. You mean like page by page analysis? I don't. <laughs> maybe, maybe, but not exactly. Um, kind of section by section, though. So, all right. All right wait, wait. Let's, let's hold you, off of that. Do you block into sections? I think you can easily block this into sections. So, all right, we'll start here. I guess you're going to do that. Yeah. Um, I, I thought a lot about Cyclops this time, and I, I don't think I would have normally compared those two readily, but I think what's happening in Cersei is a kind of inverse of Cyclops in a way, right? In Cyclops, what we get are this kind of reality happening where people's language is blown up, right? And that language tells you something about their inner being, who they are, something like that. I think what Cersei is doing is something very similar. It's, it's rather than the language being the thing, right? Their language remains the same, right? Their, their kind of reality component remains the same. Their inner being changes, but it has this, almost the same effect. You buying that? I mean, mm-hmm. not in terms of reading. The reading effect is different for me, but both of them are trying to express something about people's inner lives that is not present in the facade that we present casually. Which is why it's interesting that it's done as a play, because you would think a play would be so external that yeah. you know, people are only speaking, but there's, cl- I, I think you are. I, I, I agree with you. I, I like that. But it's definitely then a, a complete you know, rejiggering of what we would normally think of with a play that's all, uh, you know, we would think the internal monologue, right, would reveal the hidden things that we are not supposed to see. But the fact that he's it's doing it as a play, yeah. I mean, it's it, uh, once again, he's, he's calling into question the power of narrative to be trustworthy. And we ha- you have to wonder, like, are these yeah. things, are these, like, there's so many things in here that are clearly on a narrative level, factual. Like later on, you know, we will see that, oh, that really did happen. Like he really did lose that button on his pants. But then there's also so many things that are just never comment upon again. So you wonder, like, what, what is the line of reality and what is the rea- like line of, of did that really happen? Yeah. So I, I think the purpose of it, though, I think you're right that it, uh, we're learning things about Bloom that he, even in his interior monologue, was not cognizant of or did not think to bring to that surface. Yes. Well, we get deeper splunking of the human consciousness because totally. of the psychedelic aspect yeah. of totally. it. Whereas... In like you said, Cyclops, you get like that 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 first layer of the consciousness. Mm-hmm. But when you, what is the explanation? Are they drugged? Like what is the? You you just never know. You never find out. You can never find out like why they're why so we're in that sort of. I th- well, I think for Stephen, you know, the absinthe is playing a role. Okay, absolutely. But Bloom doesn't. We don't have that excuse, right? Yeah, Bloom's not drunk. He's not drunk. But there is a he sense didn't, he didn't have anything. He, ha- he says that he had oh, a glass two of drinks. Yeah. We know that he had a glass of wine. What is it, like Rome Less- booze, which we assume <laughs> is wine. Like that, yeah. He drank in Lester Gonings. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, but we're talking about at like, the end of Ox in the yeah, Sun. But, but, this isn't, but, but this isn't Bloom because we've been in Bloom's head all along. This is so outrageous. Like the things this that he's, he's dreaming. Yeah, I would say this isn't Bloom. I, I don't even think he's seeing these things. I think this is for our this is for our pleasure. The narrative itself has suddenly gone on drugs. Um, really? I think I think there's I think there are oh, visions in here that Bloom is seeing and visions that Stephen is seeing. Bloom sees Rudy. Okay. No doubt. Bloom sees Rudy. It's <laughs> but is it like we have to we have to qualify what we mean by that. I don't think Bloom is sitting there over Stephen 
and really says, oh my god, I had a vision of Rudy. It's clearly something that he, it's like wish fulfillment that he's bringing forth. But the whole like apotheosis of Bloom, the new Bloomusalem, I think that that is something that's just a blip that might have had a seed in Bloom's head that the narrative itself is just having fun with. I think there's a metempsychosis of identities coming through, whether Bloom's conscious of them or not. But we're definitely uh, seeing those things, I feel like, bang up against each other. All right. Right. So here, so I think I agree with you if we're talking about Cyclops, right? Cyclops, that narration, right, the giganticism seems to be outside the realm of those people. I agree with that. I think something different is happening here. I actually think that this is like, I mean, I don't want to be too pat about this, but id or even maybe collective unconscious filtered through these individuals. So I, where you might be right, I don't think they're conscious of them in any kind right. of like, you know, clear way. They definitely speak to who they are. Sure. It's, look, Joyce is very suspicious of Freud's psychoanalysis, mm-hmm. Young, the collective unconscious. He's having fun with that idea here. Yeah. There's no doubt. Clearly. I mean, this is, this is wish fulfillment. This is dreams coming forth. We battle our demons in our dreams so that we can then have that happy ending of yeah. visualize. Like, you know, we we're purging ourselves through our dreams so that we can actually visualize Rudy at the end. But again, the, the, you know. I think it's also calling that into, you know, it's, it's satirizing that as well. Oh, yeah. I, I sure. think that, like, the, 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 it's, it's difficult because this, the skin of reality is, is so, it's, yes. it, it's constantly disappearing, right? Like, and, and I think that's just how life is in general. And this, this shows that where you, there are things that are very much happening, but I don't know at any given time what is real and what is not. I don't think we're supposed to imagine, though, that they're all high, and Bloom is really imagining okay. these things. I think when Bella Cohen steps on the stage, between her saying, you know, I'm all of a muck sweat, and then she says at the other point, you'll know me the next time, I think we're to imagine that virtually no time has passed. In right. all that time, Bella's become Bello, and Bloom's become, uh-huh. you know, one of the, right. you know, severin of Venus and Furs, if you will. Yeah. In- Interestingly yeah. enough, we also have perhaps the most unbiased third person like narrative voice in the entire text with those stage directions right so it's like when you strip away the skin as you suggest of character and of identity what's left but that kind of bare bones third person narrative that's totally removed from the story and is just narrating action you know as it unfolds in some sense they're left bare yeah yeah that's interesting alright so so (laughs) <laughs> this is tough. What's happening, I think, is that we're going... Right, we've talked many times about what the kind of uh, overall you know, goal of USC's is. It's to demonstrate the inner self. This is going deeper, right? This is his way, I think, mm-hmm. to plunge deeper. And what it uncovered... So I kept wondering, like, why this now? Right? I think you're right. This kind of seamlessness, the, the sense I don't know reality, right, where I could easily kind of see the boundaries of it in Cyclops for the most part. I can't anymore. Why now? Why now? Because there's nowhere else for these guys to go before the reunite. What we need to see is their souls laid bare for us right at this kind of climactic point so that we can have the move back. And what it turns out for me is that the soul of Steven is very, very sad. (laughs) And the soul of Bloom is very, let's say sexually repressed or right that's that's what what, what this is an experiment of ter- paring away all the layers to get to the essence yeah i think but also uh, 
one who's afraid, afraid of a, of, of a world who's marginalized him. Because, I mean, part of the fantasy is, mm-hmm. is, is this, you know, being put on trial and he's waiting for yeah. some judi- adjudication yeah. that's going to get him immolated. So, yeah, part of this is, is this sexual repression, but it's also... A constant judging. A constant judging because he's yeah, yeah. an outsider in all of this. Yeah. yeah. You know, he's more on the outside than the random Protestant person because the random Protestant person seems to have a, you know, a, a larger collective to fall back on than, than him... The, 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 the intellectual Jewish person. Right. So, you know, it's one thing if he was a part of his own community, but he's yeah. not. Mm-hmm. He's someone who transcends it because of his his thoughts and such. He's got utopia and dystopia, like, in both quantities, yeah. right? And he's not certain of either. Whereas, you know, with the Protestants, with the Catholics, even with the Jews, you've got the certainty. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have that. Is this the first chapter? Well, is this the meeting of Bloom and Stephen that we've been waiting for? That that it comes. You well, know? they met in Octavius. Uh-huh. They yeah. met, but they but haven't was, really interacted. They haven't really interacted, yeah. right? This is kind of like they're really their lives essentially crossing paths at this yeah. point, right? This, this is the juncture of it all. This is it. It's and it's one thing we haven't talked about is the time. It's midnight, right? It's midnight. It's the witching hour, right? It's, right everything is coming together. You know, in the the model of, of the Homeric model, you know, we do need at some point to introduce. The magic of Circe, you know, it's it's midnight, and and this is this is the end because the final three are are the homecoming, right? So it's it's like this is the climax. Mm-hmm. Now yeah. in the Odyssey, we're expecting the climax to be Ithaca, you know, Odysseus vengeful taking his home back, but Joyce has done something different. He's put the action, really, the unification of this, and then the final three chapters are you know something. Very different than anyone reading this who realizes, oh, this is going to be the Odyssey. I'm waiting for the conflict. Yeah, yeah. Well, this ultimately is the climax yeah. right here. I mean, we have an end of the, we have several ends of the world in Circe. I think it's important to get all this out now so that the final three chapters can be like Stephen and Bloom, you know, on the come down to the homecoming. Yeah. It's different <clears throat> from the Homeric uh, story, but in, in Homer too. He kind of plays with climax because you expect like Odysseus's homecoming to be the thing, but it's not, right? We talked about this earlier. He has to, you know, be in disguise for a little while, and he has to kind of wait and plot his his revenge back. So I feel like Homer played with us a little bit with regards to you know that expectation and fulfillment, mm-hmm. um, and and perhaps you know Joyce is doing that too, you know, in an inverse way or. Yeah, I'd also I'd also like to think that by this point, I mean we're so far along in the novel that Joyce clearly knows what he's doing now. Oh, yeah. You know, when you're when you're yeah. looking at those first chapters, I think he had a different book in mind. You know, and had already published Telemachus, had already published Nestor, and then things start like you know what, rule book throws out the window, uh, goes out the window. And by this point, I th- you have to imagine by the time he's writing Circe. You know, he's already battling censors all over the place. Mm-hmm. So it's like, what the fuck? You know, I'm, I'm going to put it all in there. And he probably has already mapped out the last three by this point. So he knows exactly what he's doing as far as structure. And if you're going to get a play within the novel, as we've already hinted with Skill and Charybdis, if you're going to one-up Shakespeare, then you got to have the play... And what better way, to, what better place to put the play put that than at it. that right <laughs> moment of the climax of the unification of Stephen and Bloom? 
Right? How audacious is that if you think about it? <laughs> yeah. you know, to put together like yeah. this, this whatever, 600, 700 page tome of sorts and you're all over the place and you're, you're taking on antiquity, you're taking on Shakespeare's Hamlet, you're, you're, you're conversing with Aristotle and, and a whole bunch of other things along the way. But what are you going to do? You have the hubris. And it's, I, you know, this goes with the whole Daedalus theme that we've taught, you know, that's been built up since the last book. You're going to take Shakespeare on, and you're going to stick a goddamn play right, that, right, right at the end. Take him and on. he's talking jive in the when, thing when, there. When Shakespeare shows up, he's not even <laughs> quoting himself. He's <laughs> quoting another author, and he's barely able to speak, and yeah, he's, he he's drunk. And, he's drunk and yeah. flattened out flatteries. My problem is, you're finally going to bring Patty Dignam back, and you're going to resort to potty humor and fart jokes? Yeah, well, that's Come on, man. That's I think, the best. I think he's... Patty he's, Willie, Willie Dignam. Yeah. Dude, that, that didn't hold up for me, man. That didn't oh, hold up. I think that's part... That's, you got to take that, right? Yeah, like I, the, 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 I mean, that's a great example of bathos, right? I've always been looking for good examples of that word, but that's it. Like, when, when the mom... Like, you think, when the mom rises up, right? Like, that's... That's horrific. Oh, that's horrific. And then when she's using words from Martha Clifford's letter, like, I pray for you in my other world, you know, it just sinks things down and you, you giggle, but you shouldn't be, right? Like, it's, you got to take both. I mean, life is full of those absurdities, right? You know, talking about Joyce one-upping everybody, Joyce is one-upping himself in this chapter because along the way, like, you have, you have chapters and you're like, oh my God, there's like, you know, a couple of dozen characters here and you're doing this, you're doing that. He has what I mean. There, I try to keep track of him. He's got like, he's got like a hundred people coming in here. There's people living. There's people that are dead. You got inanimate objects. You got scores of dogs who seem to have roles. In, in Edward the Seventh. Edward the Seventh. <laughs> yeah. yeah like, not only great. that. Like if you're looking for a compendium that has virtually every character of Ulysses, except for the three later chapters, but there's very few new characters yeah. introduced then. Yeah. They're all here. Like, there'll be whole paragraphs where, like, people are either engaged in the trial of Bloom or they're, like, suddenly hunting Bloom. And, like, there'll be, like, all the minor characters that just had, like, the walk-on roles are suddenly there again. (laughs) It's almost like in this, you know, he's been cannibalizing, you know, Shakespeare, you know, Homer, other models and whatnot – it's now time to cannibalize himself. So, I mean, it's yeah. like throwing out the rule book. Like, okay, how am I going to ensure that nobody is ever going to Joyce me by putting me in their oxen in this <laughs> chapter? <laughs> I'm going to do it first. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, he dabbled with like gender issues and gender fluidity, and then he just he takes it to a new level. He's yeah. you know, he's got his 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 main character, his hero, changing genders and giving birth. To eight children. So it's like it's, it's the level of absurdity is, is, is tremendous. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So <laughs> you want to talk about plays or... Yeah. <laughs> so I want to go back to Josh's idea about the play, right? Uh, I, I've been thinking about this. I don't know what to do with it. But plays as a structural expression of art are the opposite of, all of, of what a novel can do in terms of expressing interiority, Right. In some ways, yeah. I think a lot of ways. I mean, you only in a play, you really only have action and dialogue to analyze the inner psyche of people, right? Exactly. Uh, until you get to some more modern plays where, like, uh, in, in um, Our Town, where the stage director works more like a narrative and starts kind of doing... But before that, when you look at, you know, plays pre-Shakespeare... Yeah, well, Shakespeare, like the soliloquy. Sil- like, you're, you get the interiority there. But that's but, what made him revolutionary. Yeah, yeah. That, oh, was, okay. that, was what, that was his genius, you know? Is that he was showing us the inter- interior world of people before people were ready for it or knew what to do with it. And he was doing it through the monologue. But And, and 
actually, that had died away. Excuse me, not the right? monologue, the soliloquy. When, when we're going through Victorian, you know, plays and things, when you think Ibsen and, you know, it's changing with Strindberg at the end, you know, turn of the century, things like that, that's pretty much eliminated, right? You're understanding, you know, plot and character through what is being said and what is being heard. Realism. You have to intuit any... Yeah, it's realism. You have to intuit any kind of psychology from those things. Mm-hmm. So, in the this episode that is ultimately trying to express, you know, the unexpressible in herself, to use this is, I think, kind of thumbing your nose at convention. He's putting a veil up, you know, right? But but he's also, he's simultaneously tearing it down, yeah. you know? I, I, I think he's that, trying, I am. Yeah. My, my big idea is, he's actually rewriting theater, yeah. in a way, right? He, he's demonstrating a type of theater that functions like a novel, and that is actually unperformable. Because, I mean, a lot of the great stuff in this is that narrative, you know, inside the parentheses Mm -hmm. description, which is utterly useless if I'm in a stage watching this, right? Mm -hmm. There's stage directions that offer no direction, essentially, right? So, Or, Or they offer the direction to make sense of any of the action that's on the play. Right. But generally, you wouldn't get them. So, it's unperformable. It's unperformable. It, well, it would make sense. Right? right. How did it turn out when people performed this? Because it was in Was it performed? Yeah, I heard, I heard that... Oh. Yeah, no, I heard of, like someone tried to do a version of really? this. I believe that. Yeah. I could believe that. That'd be amazing. You need an enormous cast. Uh, 60s or something? <laughs> really no, man, they did it with a Shakespearean so. troupe of, like, six dudes. Uh, maybe. Yeah. I didn't know anything about it. Uh, it works as a radio play. Another yeah. another plug for the 1982 <laughs> yeah. recording. I, I'm going to say now, I did not like the recording. This this is the only chapter I didn't enjoy it because I felt like they added so much more than the, the, what the text actually Sound. allows. And has. Sound. Well, I'll give you an example. So there's one point where uh, um, Bloom is going to be, he's up for potential death. And the guy comes in to, you know, perform the duty, and he walks up the ladder. I forget the exact phrase, right? Mm-hmm. And in the recording, they had the guy's feet step yeah. going up, you know, dop, dop. I kind of feel like if Joyce wanted us to have that sound, he would have put in there, tap, tap, tap. And, and what's interesting is, is it's not so much a knock on the recording as it is a kind of um, a respect to Joyce. Like, he's... Reading this book has been such an auditory experience, you know? It's really quite wild that he can take language and turn it into... Like, now I see what people talk about when they say there's poetry and and music in this book. You know, he makes up his own sounds. He makes up sounds that didn't exist before this text. I find that to be kind of fascinating. Yeah, and you're saying the audio play undermines that. Well, well, they they took some liberties, which then, I think takes away from what Joyce is actually trying to do with the text. Yeah, that was my argument like a month ago. Right? Maybe, yeah. I mean, You might general, just know the text better than me. That's, yeah, no, know? I mean, and I don't yeah. think there's anything wrong with right. the Right, it's an editorial decision. Sure. Like, I think they've been doing that since the very beginning. There yeah. would be like sounds of seagulls when mm. Stephen's walking yeah. on the beach. Right, right. I, did, I just find it, I mean, I, I having, you know, only had, you know, the experience of reading this and then in the past, ever since we started recording these for the past several months, this is the first I've ever listened to it, and I just I find it so enthralling. Dude, like that's a five-hour recording. I listened to it four times. Dude, that thing, several weeks. That thing <laughs> saved my ass. I listened to four hours last night, and I would not even be here right now. I wouldn't even know what I'm, I wouldn't well, even know what to say. I still don't know what to say. You know, I got to tell you, I didn't remember. It's been years, of course, maybe ten years, but I didn't remember Cersei being this difficult. It's dude, it really complex. It is. It's very complex. Um, you know, if it is dialogue, a lot of it is. 
is completely garbled and nonsensical without context of the rest of the book. Right. And so it relies so heavily on your ability to remember what came before it. That, yeah. Which, that, is, which is kind of similar, I think, to subconscious psyche. There's, there's that play. I get that. It's, it's playing with that notion. There's nothing in here that is difficult like Proteus, where you see what the sentence is, you just don't understand what Stephen is talking about. The difficulty is there will be right. fractions of sentences that you, you understand the syntax... You just don't understand, like, where is this, like, what is going on, like, why is these ellipsis dots here, like, what was he going to say? There's fraction, the, the, the other part is the work of, like, okay, oh, that's right, that was something he said, and I'll tell you, listening to it, perhaps too obsessively, like I have been, <laughs> helps so much because I'll read something, or I'll listen to, like, oh, shit, I remember the actor's voice saying that very line. It's like, holy shit, I never knew that that was, a, like, that was an actual repeat from that. It helps so much in that way. Here's the thing, right? What is Joyce lauded for? He's lauded for a narrative that attempts to try to get to the way the mind thinks, right? Mm-hmm. We've talked about this. It, interestingly enough, it's not until he takes away narrative almost completely and gives it to us in a play form that he actually can capture this sort of fragmentation that is the mind both in the conscious and the subconscious world. It's a bit of a snub, like you were saying, I guess, at his own self, but he's doing something very interesting with that. And and the chaos, like if you remove the stage directions, the chaos that is this play is the chaos of the mind and all its memory and what we remember and what we don't remember. I mean, you know, you're trying to sort through a mind here and this is how chaotic it is. All right, so, so why then do we make a play that has... Laws, right? Plays have laws to them. We understand them on the written page and subvert it so, so severely because that is the struggle of the human mind. That is what I do every day, right? I wake up and I try and make sense of civilization and what's happening, right? And my desires are constantly fighting back, right? It, it's, you want to subvert it, it. It is. It's the it's super ego struggle, right? The, the format does that here. The play that demonstrates order and the content that demonstrates chaos are at war. It's really good. That was well yeah. said. I think that's right. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I, I. Yeah, I think that's that's one of the smartest I things I think it. I've heard on or that's read on Cersei. I think yeah, we cut it. it right there. I think, Joe, you just solved the riddle. No way. No, I, I think that that's that's <laughs> wonderful because the idea is you, you can look at chaos that is unbounded and you won't make you won't see anything. Mm-hmm. But when you see chaos within these strictures of what you assume to be this is a oh look a play I get it. Right. And then you see that like the chaos within those parameters it's a frightening thing. Mm-hmm. I think it, I think Dave you're right it's a much closer approximation to like just the fragmentary nature of most of our thought. I mean look the 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 interior monologue I think captures that in a very literary way that is a pleasure to read. Proteus is a pleasure yeah. to read. Yeah. But like the actual fragmented sentences, the the jump cuts to various things might be more like the chaos of our minds. Yeah, and and with a play you don't have to explain that. You know, I was, you know what I was thinking a lot about? I was thinking about um Death of a Salesman. Mhm. Because in the play of A Death of a Salesman, it allows that kind of highly fragmented jumping of scene to scene, the fragmenting of time, which is also happening here. You don't need a narrator to actually describe why we're jumping to this or that. It just jumps. And so that's another thing that I feel like this form of of the drama, the play, allows for that. Now, let it be said, though, we are all staring at this and talking about the chaos that is reined in by what we hope to be a formal structure that we can all understand. 
But that chaos itself is highly orchestrated down to the minute of level. Course, yeah. The fact that he was... Because it, it, it isn't just like, oh, I'll just randomly write this word. Like, almost everything can be situated... Oh, I see the kernel of where that began. Like, it was a word that was mentioned, like, two pages ago, suddenly clicked, and it blossomed into this weird, almost, like, cancerous tumor of a hallucination. Well, if we extend my metaphor, right, um, Joyce is the ultimate artificer of this, and he controls, right, he's creating a sense of chaos, right, he... And in our life, it's God. I don't believe in God. But Joyce <laughs> thinks he's God, right? He's the God of the text, in a way, right? That has all the answers that I'm trying to scramble to find. And go back to Stephen in Portrait 5, right? Like, he's he's created the highest form of artistic expression, which, you know, in the, the Flaubert sense of things, in the even in the Aristotelian sense of things, is drama. Mm-hmm. And we've got yeah. it right here. And now he's the, what does he say, the... the you know, the god behind creation paring his fingernails, right? right? That's yeah. what he describes in the uh, <laughs> portrait, and here we see it. Yeah, yeah, and, that's right. And here's what, and here's what he does. Before, right? That's, I love seeing this in in his his strategies, not in content, right? He, never, he doesn't have to say it. Yeah, it's, it's brilliant. This is what he does. With a wand, he beats time slowly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's pretty <laughs> my good. My favorite line of the chat. By the way, I mean, this is one of my favorites. I think, you know, oh, yeah. along with Skill and Charybdis and Sirens, I think, and maybe Cyclops, I really had a fondness for this round. Mastergodians and Proteans. See, they, those they, are two yeah. of my least favorites. Ah, <laughs> and I were talking last night about how funny it was. Yeah, right? it's, it's, it's our, our read of it, like, I left several times out yeah. loud. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I don't know if, if you get that in this thing alone, but since you're with these characters for the last 400, 500 pages, like, you're a part of the inside joke yeah. at this point. Yeah, so there, yeah, is, yeah. there is a beautiful <laughs> sense of this is, this is the harvest, this is the culmination of yeah. something that's been going on yeah. for hundreds of pages. So your payoff is even greater. Yeah. So, I mean, the struggles that you have earlier on in the book, I mean, th- this is the reason why you do it. Because you get yeah. to a chapter like this where there's so many like, oh, man, this is fucking great. Yeah. Well, I, lo- I love the mix of humor and lightness and pathos, yeah. which mm-hmm. I think this does. And I think Skill and Cribs this does. And Sirens did yeah. the best. And Psychops, right? Those are the ones. The ones that get too lugubrious, I kind of turn off on. The you ones like that Lotus do- Eaters. Uh, I do like Lotus Eaters. Yeah. Um, yeah, but, but that's light. Yeah, sure. <laughs> that's light. Um, Steven gets too heavy, although I like Telemachus. Yeah. You, don't, you don't think a, a, a dead son being resurrected at the end is a, a little Oh, no, it totally is. I mean, but, I mean he does things the mix, that could take the uh, edge off of the that. The mix but. makes it palatable, okay. right? It makes it, um, it makes me want to see what's next, yeah. you know? And Hades... Is just is just a drag. Yeah, a drag. Yeah. yeah. By the way, I did. Fi- I didn't like. I thought I dreamed it for a bit. I thought I was having like, <laughs> a, a, a sort of a bloomy and sort of a, a hallucination. Uh, Ulysses in Night Town was a play based on the fifteenth oh. episode, and it was actually nominated for a Tony in nineteen seventy four. I heard of this. Wow, yeah, that's shit. why. I, I, yeah, that's why I kind of brought it up. I, I are there are there like you weren't born yet, motherfucker. Uh, it ran for like twenty six performances, no sixty nine performances. So I don't. I mean, you couldn't miss seventy four. I don't we think we have like multiple conversations going on right now. I'm trying to give Joe shit. Yeah, I think one person can talk into the damn microphone at the time. Unfortunately, um, yeah, I, I you know I, I doubt that anybody was sticking this on YouTube in nineteen seventy three. Oh, I don't know, man. Uh, no, actually, the show opened off Broadway in fifty eight. It ran. 
had a successful run. So it, it had been around a while. So maybe there is an actual. Oh, I'm checking that, that out. Transferred. It's got to be something on that. Well, how the, I mean, but, yeah. Well, how the hell would you do this? I don't know. This is like crazy. We never talked about the movie. You know, there's a movie. What? I could not get it. It's not Shut available. Really? I want to say it's like 66 or this? something. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how I feel um, about apparently that. Apparently, <laughs> it's it's the first feature film to to have the word fuck in it. Oh, all right. Yeah, um, and it might have gotten a little bit of a word. It, it's like mid sixties. I, I looked for it like over the summer. I couldn't find it. Well, this chapter definitely makes you realize why it could be a banned book. You know, in places. Yeah. You know, it definitely gets. I, yeah, uh, I even looked in it. like you know illegal places, which I normally don't do, and I could not find this thing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't know. Huh. Uh, you find it? Uh, yes, sixty-seven. Sixty-seven. And okay. the first couple of words they say it's it's loosely based on. The yeah, novel, no, so I'm sure. How much I mean, it's a two-hour movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, this would be yeah, pretty movie. loose. Yeah. All right, let's go back to something I've been holding <laughs> holding in my head for a while now. <laughs> I wanted to go back to Josh's comment about it being midnight, and to- and synthesize it with Tom's comment about Bloom being marginal, because I think setting Bloom being what marginal. marginal. Okay. okay. I think there's something else going on here, and it is setting, right? It's midnight, and midnight is the witching hour when people can kind of be what they want because they're under the the shadow of darkness. Well, I guess that's a bad metaphor, but uh, in darkness and... Um, the cover of night. The, thank you very much. I was mixing. Uh, they're under the cover of night, uh, but also they're on the outskirts of town, right? They're in this place that allows for... For the hedon, right, to to come out. In that part of town, it's midday, if you want to look at that. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Um, <laughs> and, and, I'll tell you, and I think this applies to Stephen, too. Right? I mean, not maybe as, as you know, distinctly, but, but Stephen is also marginalized, yeah. you know, continually. He's on the outside. He's somebody that doesn't feel at home here. He's just come back. And it's like this space. The time and the space has allowed for this... This ultimate release, right, of of who they are, mm-hmm. and I think that's what's happening. And I, I like the way that um, you know Stephen is rather unconscious of it because of the drink, but Bloom's not. That this is like almost happening to Bloom mm-hmm. because I think that speaks to his day, right, and the problem of the infidelity, the problem of that going on, and almost like like him subconsciously just. Just letting all artifice go, letting all facade go. It mid, almost at the exact midway point when Bloom is either seeing, having some sort of conversation with his grandfather, Virig. Virig. Right? He comments twice about how his day has gone. Like midway through, I should have marked it. But yeah, it's, he, he, he basically says, he basically he, summarizes the day. Yeah. He said that a couple times. Yeah. we've got we've got a couple of moments where he's like, okay, this is what the day's been so far. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I, but I think I think that's like he acknowledges. I mean, look, I, I think the, 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 of course the the biggest thing or one of the biggest things that has to be addressed with this is like what what really are these dreams, visions, hallucinations, rever- like whatever you want to call them. And part of it, I think, Tom, you had mentioned earlier, like, well, what are we supposed to imagine? Are they all drugged or just is it really that they're exhausted? I think part of it, like, one of the ways of reading into it is we are, of course, more susceptible when when we are absolutely either drunk or exhausted, Exhausted, right? I, 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 for one, when I read this, I don't for a moment think that Bloom is actually seeing, you know, Virag coming down the chimney flue like Santa Claus 
because no, then right. it, then I'm surely there would have been a thought, you know, later on, like, God, wasn't that a weird thought that I had about, it? you know, like, don't we, like, especially oh, when, no, we, he, when he, we get to Eumaeus, <laughs> you guys don't know what you're in for with Eumaeus, but this is like when, <laughs> when, you know, Bloom finally, you know, comes into his own, you get a chapter that's essentially written in the voice of what Leopold Bloom would probably sound like putting pen to paper. Yeah. And it's, it's tough. I mean, he would tell you if he saw Santa Claus, Grandpa Virag jumping down, and so how could he fit down there? You think, you know? <laughs> but anyway, my my point being, um, that being said, it does play on the idea of like daydreaming, although in this case, night dreaming. Like yeah, you can almost yeah. imagine that, like you know, we have these unconscious thoughts that happen, and I think that this what better setting than where the rules do not apply? You are in the most Catholic city outside of Rome perhaps even more Catholic than Rome. I mean, people say that Irish fundamentalism, Catholic fundamentalism is even more strict than, sure. you know, than oh, in Rome. No so, you know, and yet this town has a red light district in 1904 that's bigger than what's in Paris. <laughs> so, so like it's, it, it really is kind of like the place where no rules apply. So let, let me, if there's a sense by this point in the day that Bloom doesn't really understand his conscious motivations, right? He's not really sure why he's following this kid around. He mentions it several times. Like, why am I... He doesn't know, right? Um, So, isn't this a way that, like, he's maybe communicating with himself, you know? Like, so you're right. He's not seeing Virag walk down the stairs. He's feeling it. Right, that's the sense I get. It's so I, I look at this. I like I like the comparison to Cyclops. Right, the Cyclops is almost like Cyclops was incredible reading it. Right, but then after you read this, it seems like this is actually a far superior method. Right, like <laughs> yeah. Cyclops, like you have the voice, and then you have the almost parody like commentary on what was just said. There's no distinction at this point. Mm-hmm. Like it's all there. Like Bloom's sitting there looking at three whores. And the commentary is provided by a speaking character who's saying, oh, look at item number two or item number three. You know, goose fed, you know, goose fat, like stuff them like, you know, geese and pate. I can't remember what he's saying about Flory, but, yeah. you know, it's, it's right there. Like, he's interacting with it. Like yeah. you, those two voices have merged together, you know, into this play. And, and I would say that Ox and the Sun is maybe a, a half step between them, right? I mean, you still have the clear designations between styles. But they, there's, um, they, there is more of a flow than in Cyclops, and le- and less of a flow than in Cersei. Yeah, so, yeah. Oxen is definitely like a like a transition, right? Because yeah, you have the different styles, but those styles aren't commenting on each other. You're in it. You, you always knew what was what was you know the nameless one speech versus the parody <clears throat> that, in Cyclops. That, that's yeah. kind of like wandering rocks preparing us for Cyclops, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, there's a there's a building, there's an evolution there. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've been saying that. I think okay. I think uh, I can't remember who I think Joe might have been you who was talking about uh, Skill and Charybdis. Like it keeps coming back to Skill and Charybdis, where things crack open and you start yeah. seeing the like. Oh, I can put a play in the middle, you know, on a single page. I can put a play in there. I mean, we've we've had this preparation ever since. I, I, my argument was that that is looking forward to all yeah. the things we're going to yeah. see. Skill and Cribbus for me is the first point I remember the narrator taking on its own yeah. sort of uh, decision making or. Yeah. or or a sort of life on itself. An editorializing. It, it, it was an editorializing. Yeah. That was I would free. say Aeolus. So, <laughs> right, the, the, the headlines. Yeah. The that, headlines. That, Joyce has just given you a taste yeah. in Aeolus. It, it comes alive in Skill and Krebdis. 
I like the idea of, uh, I think we, you had used the term um, overture for scale and Caribbean. Right. And I, I, I disagreed with you then. Um, and I was just quibbling slightly because I think you're no. right, but I think it's more like a palette. It's like a painter's sure, palette, sure. right? You've got all the, the colors right there and like, oh, my palette just like grew exponentially and now I'm going to play with it. Yeah, I think that's right. Okay, <laughs> so um, I, I think there's a way to go through the text almost in a similar way than uh, we did Oxen of the Sun. Right where, where it's not about what's happening or what's not. It's explaining why it's happening. Right. So yeah. if we can, everyone left. So if we can conclude <laughs> that um, the reason I am, the reason Bloom is seeing this thing or yeah. feeling this thing underneath, um, is because of this. Right. So I, I'm not being very ticket. Let's start. No, no I think you are. Like yeah. you're saying, like let's yeah, let's let's hunt. <laughs> let's hunt for the the kernel. Exactly. Right. What, for each what one. is the connection? What do I need to understand about Bloom because of this this kind of subconscious expression that is coming out, or Stephen? You know, moment to moment. Can we break it up into sections? Well, like, can are. you section? I, it I off? think you can very easily. So not very easily. Yeah, but not certainly not as easy as <clears throat> oxen in the sun. I was or cops, it, but, but you can. Yeah. So basically, I mean, what is the reality that really <clears throat> happens here? Right. We get Bloom following Lynch and Stephen into Nighttown. Mm-hmm. We get they they lose track of each other. Bloom is accosted by what are called Watchmen, which I I guess are just police, but, right? It, it's our, like, did that really happen? So yeah, I don't know about Bloom, that Bloom feeds a dog and then immediately is accused of engaging in some sort of nuisance-like behavior, which yeah. is either accused of prevention of cruelty of animals, as though that's a bad <laughs> thing, or the Watchman actually just comments prevention of cruelty to animals. Like, it's, you could read that two ways. Like, you're, you're preventing cruelty to animals, as though that's, yeah, by feeding them, right? It's not, I always read that as that might be just Bloom feeding them, like maybe I'm not supposed to be feeding them, and then automatically he's visualizing those guards and costume. Because if. But you're that, taking for granted there are guards uh, in at reality. The end, at the end. But not at the not, not at the end. I, do not I, think, I, I don't think those are the two same guards. I think for us, oh, the reader, they are the same. two same watchmen. <laughs> yeah. They are clearly the same two watchmen because by the economy of Cersei, you want them to be just like suddenly we have Sissy Caffrey. Who's suddenly a whore? You know, even though we just met her in night or in Nausicaa, uh, you know, she clearly was not a whore then, right? Of course, or we would assume not, right? So I think, uh, yeah, um, I, I, all right, I'm going on too long about this, but I don't think that that I don't think he's actually accosted by the Watchmen because that whole thing just disappears. Like it doesn't that right. turns into Bloom suddenly on trial for you know. Well, here's why. Here's why I think letters. it happens, right? Because I find it impractical that. He would just see Watchmen. You know what I mean? So there, there would be there, there seems to be no reason for that. Guilty conscience. Guilty conscience. Maybe, okay. Uh, I, I, you know, I'm not a practicing Catholic. You know, I have no beliefs, but I was raised as a Catholic. I still have a guilty conscience. Yeah. I feel so bad about shit I say, and I shouldn't. And so, Isn't that like, because like, you're a moral person. <laughs> I was no, gonna say, no, you're it's, it's, it's it's a neurosis. <laughs> like a cop, like there was a cop parked in front of your building, and I come to a complete stop. I'm like, oh, look at me. I'm coming to a complete stop. Please don't pull me over. Like that's not sane. And so I could just by seeing that cop. Yeah, split second. I could be thinking about right. how I'm outside my house. No, well, by, by the intersection there, probably oh, just yeah, like yeah, flagging know, people yeah. down with the radar. Yeah, there's a cop. Nobody cares about this. <laughs> but you no, know, anyway, but you know what I mean. Like that. I think that's all you need. I think that's all you need. Like we we don't know of Bloom that Bloom has these 
we know that Bloom's engaging in some sort of, uh, you know, interesting behavior, yeah. at least with Martha, and there okay. clearly have been others. And I think that it's, you know, I think we suddenly see a side of Bloom that we didn't get in his interior monologue, like an actual feeling of, like, you know, guilt, but at the same time also masochism. Like, he, yeah. he clearly enjoys being... Uh, Put on trial. Yeah maybe, yeah, maybe we need to save it till we get actually get to that part and we we, we dig into it. But yeah, yeah. I, I think there's several well, parts where we got to like question what's Bloom's psychology? Is this you know he he wants the pain or or, or you know where is he at? And I, I will say that was the one point I wasn't sure of whether that was happening or not. I I think I lean toward the side it was, but who cares? So we get that right. Then we get to the brothel, yeah. right? We get in there basically. We just talk to the three women for a while. We see Stephen and Lynch. Um, there's a little bit of banter, right? They read palms. You know, they talk. Then you get Bella Cohen come in. Then there's um, dancing. Right? Yeah, they hear a snippet of York, uh, my girl's a Yorkshire right. girl. And so okay. they start, they dance. There's dancing. Stephen, Stephen gets a little bit too breaks into the it. Breaks the chandelier. Presumably, I mean, so we, have to, we do have to take into account Stephen is... Super drunk, and if we take him at his word in Eumaeus, he never ate anything that day. Although, I thought he ate breakfast. I thought he ate some of what was prepared in Telemachus. But when Bloom asks him in the next episode, when was the last time you ate? He said it was yesterday, and Bloom says, oh, I guess you're right. Yeah, it is the next day. He's like, oh, no, no, then I guess I mean two days ago. So he's got an empty stomach, and he's got however many whiskeys, absinths. Um, Bloom even thinks that he might have been drugged at right. one point. So, he, so, so does he, does he claim that it might be Mulligan that drugged him? Yeah, in Eumaeus, he, he claims that uh, yeah. his friends probably drugged him so that they could catch, you know, beers and right. wine off of him. I mean, again, that's... <laughs> poor wow. kid, man. Yeah. So, so you get that. Steven runs out wildly in the street. Bloom chases him down. Um, we get into some kind of kerfuffle about Stephen possibly um, insulting some women that these two yes, he guys just, are with. Probably just bumped into right. sissy and fight breaks out. So you think it's really sissy? No, well, whoever the oh, sissy right, character okay. is, yeah. I mean, it doesn't doesn't. I mean, it doesn't yeah, really exactly. matter. Yeah, I, I didn't mean, think it was really sissy. Yeah. And then you get uh, Bloom takes care of it. And they walk off. Right? Yeah, That's well, it. You, you have an offense against the crown, or supposedly offense against the crown. That's yeah. where the physicality yeah. happens, and then that's yeah. rescue part two. I guess. Exactly. Yeah. One thing we haven't talked about is the. I mean, we have so much to talk about with this, but just because you mentioned that, like this whole thing is a fascinating thing because we're set up for this talking about the British soldiers that have free reign, especially in Nighttown. Right. Yeah. And so the whole idea, go ahead. Yeah, no, going back to what you said before, Dublin's this holy city, it, you know, it's probably even, you know, more pious than Rome itself. It isn't a free Ireland though. So yeah. you have to keep in mind, this is a British outpost no matter what. And you go with the old adage, you know, sailors need sport in every yeah. port. So the British <laughs> empire is going to provide or make sure that there is something yeah. carved out of a particular area to take care of their, you know, their, so their, we've got, we've got to have a conflict with King Edward. Like it's, it's like it's brewing, it. right? Like you, you have to have British troops somewhere there yeah. and you're going to have to have this sort of, uh, this confrontation. And, and we've been prepared for this, right? Isn't it in Lotus Eaters where he's contemplating like Maud Gon's letter about, uh, is Maud Gon? I can't remember, you know, but the letter, Lady Gregory, I can't remember the names anymore, but the, <laughs> the, the letter that was in one of the most recent, you know, editions of the newspaper talking about the you know, British soldiers should not have, have free reign in Nighttown and yeah. we got to clean up the streets and whatnot. So we're, we're ready for this. And 
the only act of violence in this entire novel, if we discount the biscuit tin thrown by the, the you know, doofus <laughs> at the end of uh, Cyclops, is the physical smack of a British soldier taking down Stephen. Yeah, I guess who is right. virtually apolitical. Like, it's almost like the wrong guy. He, he's not the crappie boy. Right, you know, right, it's, right. it's who does make an appearance? Who does make an appearance? Show. Yeah, <laughs> of course, has an erection because we were prepared for that in in Cyclops. That, I, you know, if I was to list all the things that disturbed me, I think a hanged crappy boy with an erection that that yeah. that kind of, up there. that was up there. That was up there. That happened. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, what about Batty Dignam's fart jokes? <laughs> yes, it's a little still with it's me. Top ten for you. Yeah, it's still with me. All right, so. um... I, I mean, I think it's interesting that the narration comes before we get blue, right? So, you know, I, and I think I might throw a little bit of a monkey wrench into my idea of subconscious, you know, um, as a kind of pat way to explain this. You know, it's more complex than that. But, but don't you think that's too easy? Like, I think exactly. I think you would embrace the idea that that is too easy, right. that you, th- this is a play. Like, there's, it's, yeah, yeah. it's you know, we, we hunger for, like, I was thinking about Oxen of the Sun, right? And how, you know, what is the temptation in reading Ox in the Sun of anybody who's just curious about our characters? You want to strip away the style and find out what's happening. And which I'm, is essentially what I just did. Which is essentially, right. And, and, <laughs> and so then we're losing like the fun of this. I think many of these visions, reveries, or whatnot, is they're commenting on the character. They're not random at all. But they, they're for our benefit. They're for our enjoyment or horror or whatnot. Well, and I, I think I th- to, to I understand yeah. this as only Bloom, like a Bloom episode, it's clearly not because we also have Steven as well. And then also we have Outside as well. Like, you know, we, I don't even get into the heads of any of the other characters, but there is yeah. a realm where this is not just, you know, Bloom here in the beginning, right? I, I think I'm going to take it further. I think I'm making the argument that Joyce thinks this is the realest you can get. That this, you know, vision of, uh, you know, a female, you know, bloom that is impregnated is, you know, as like, like, that's it. Like, if you want reality, that's reality. I mean, it's a strange way to go about it, creating artifice to get reality, but that's. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I I think you're right. I think, think about it. I mean, bloom, bloom himself in Les Dragonians has already wondered what it would be like to have a baby. Yeah. So what's different about actually having bloom have a baby? And then also, Bloom wants to have a child. Bloom, Bloom does. When he says, oh, I always wanted to be a mother, well, he certainly always wanted to have a child. And then he's got eight successful children, you know, in the bag. But what I was going to say is, you know, by stripping it, like, by stripping it and trying to find out, like, what actually really did happen, it's almost like we are, I think I might have read this somewhere, so I, I claim no originality. But it's like we, too, have engaged in the crime of slaughtering those oxen, right? Because we're, <laughs> we're like, we've, like, we've gone again, we've slaughtered something holy. And so for yeah. finding the kernel of everything and finding, well, what really happened, I think we might actually be at risk of losing some of the fun of the hallucination. So the debate, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. you know, that debate of, like, well, did they really see the, the watch or not? I don't know how far that really gets us. You know what I mean? Because maybe he did, maybe he didn't. Maybe it doesn't matter. Right. I don't know. Well, that, that goes right back to Skill and Charybdis, right? That, it, you know, I guess it's the opposite, though, right? And Skill and Charybdis argues that the conversation about the thing is the meaningful thing. The answer doesn't matter. Right, but the conversation about the thing is a matter of interpret. Well, I guess, I guess it is an interpretation. But the interpretation is, I guess, the, it's a different kind of interpretation because that's the pleasure of putting together an argument, you know, like a, like a syllogism or something, right? right? It's the beauty of the syllogism, whereas the hunting for, like, well, did this actually happen or not, I think is, is different. 
You're more interested in your dog. No, the dog's doing weird things. Be good, Strom. Come on. Um, All right. So, yeah, the only... Again, I didn't want to suggest that I was pulling back the idea that, you know, this is Bloom's, you know, collective unconscious, subconscious, whatever it is. I think that's the case. Um, I I guess... You do think that's the case? No, no, no. I don't think that's the case. Um, I, I mean... It's almost like the subconscious is writing the play outside yeah. of Bloom's. Well, I think that's it. I yeah. think the the, the, <laughs> you know. the the maker or whatever you want to call yeah, it right. has taken over completely here. Yeah. You know, but think about the novel, right? Like the, the great the great um, innovation of the modern novel, the 20th century modernist text, was that we went inside the mind. Joyce is doing something. He's actually he's going deeper, right? Like he's creating a kind of narrator that can that can. Go beyond that. Yeah, you, you know. I think it, of it almost like a supercomputer, right? You plug yeah. in the characters, and then you say, "Well, these are the essences of the characters," and then you just kind of push play, and it starts generating. Like, you know, Tom Rochford's there's a hole in the ground, so Tom Rochford has to show up to jump in it because that's what Tom Rochford does, <laughs> what? right? Because and that's like a true story. You know, Tom Rochford, as we learned in what was it? Where do we meet him? Wandering rocks for the first time. And then he's the guy that ju- he actually rescued people in a manhole. So anytime a chasm opens up, you got to have Tom Rochford jump in. It's weird you mention that because I had this thought, but I wasn't going to mention because I don't know what to do with it. But it's like this chapter is like if you took all the other chapters, put them in a computer, and did some kind of strange remix thing, and it, this was this was the result. That's what I just said. Yeah, that's yeah, what I'm saying. I yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I know. I'm saying I had the same kind yeah, of thought. It really is. I, I don't know if that's meaningful or like where we. Well, do. no, but I think I think it like this. Then is if you think about that, you just put all the characters in, and then you strip away the yeah. arbitrary foibles of a you know narrator, and then throw it in there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, again, this is a crazy metaphor, but the idea is, I think this is what it would sound like. Yeah, I get the word remix kept coming. Yeah. Right, like this is just a weird remix. Yeah, yeah. but. But with the structure, with the oh, point, of course. with yeah. the with, it, it, it oversimplified. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that goes without saying. I think we say the whole thing is from the outside. It looks crazy, but really, there's structure. But going, listen, going back to Oxen and how we went chronologically through the through the uh, history of of the English language, or yeah. it, do and I, I don't know if we we I thought I heard us because I'm in and out of consciousness. <laughs> I think in, in the oxen in the oxen. Uh, uh, podcast, but I, I think we talked about you know he leaves off somewhere in in English history that leaves us unresolved. I think this is the next extension. Yeah. He's yeah. he's positing James Joyce yeah. more more arrogance, more hubris, more Joyce being larger than life. He's positing that this is the next step of the English language. This he's, is he, the this is the birth. This is the birth. He's he's birthing something so outrageous. In this chapter, and, and and once again, you know, Dave and I are on the out, you know outside of of knowing like what's coming next. But from what I've, you know, like um, when we get to the to the Molly chapter, we're just we're all over the place, yeah. right? With with no punctuation stuff. So he is furthering yeah. the st- English style and and, and 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 prose experimentation all along. So that's I. I kind of view this as the next step out of Oxen. He's putting his own stamp on the English language now. So, that's great. One of, one of the things we didn't talk about, which is one of my favorite things in the book, from Skill and Charybdis, I, that was long enough, I get it, um, is when, I forget what happens, but somebody posits that um, if Bloom and Stephen both look in the mirror, you see the face of Shakespeare. Right? I, I have that right? You're looking at me like I don't. 
someone wait when you what do you mean in the text right i thought something like that yeah wait someone in the text i forget i forget the context but but if stephen and bloom both look in the same glass the same mirror the face of william shakespeare will appear I have no recollection yeah. of that. I do. Yeah, I do. Oh, anyway. in, in Skill and Charybdis, someone says, someone says, someone talking of the character Bloom and the character Steve. I think it's a narrative voice that says it. I, that's why I can't exactly remember. It's an image in there. I have no memory. I mean, that certainly happens in in Circe, where they're both looking and they no. see the vision Wait. of uh, Shakespeare. Yeah, that's on my... And yeah, he comes that, all that's, cranked that's, down. That is a reference back to this moment. I have no Which I believe is still encrypted. But the reality, uh, that's all just preamble to this point, that um, the real answer is if you look in the face of the mirror when Bloom and Stephen look in, it's James Joyce's face. It's not Shakespeare's. Yeah. Right? That That's, that's Tom's point, right? And this is... I think the, uh, this chapter is the greatest demonstration of that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. This guy, I swear, he, he's aiming big all the time. Yeah, man. This, this chapter, I mean, I've, I think I've said this in a couple chapters, it makes my head swim. I can't control it, you know? Yeah. Ox in the Sun did that. Um, Skill and Cribs did that. There's just too many ideas. There's too many variables to keep track of. It is, it's the most ambitious thing ever. I haven't read Finnegan's Wake. No, okay, yeah, I know. It's like, <laughs> Joyce has to out Joyce himself, but yeah. I, I forget what I was uh, reading or listening to once, and he's like, you know, he talks about, um, you know, the, the greatest mind ever was Aristotle. And, and then in another interview, you know, what's he trying to do? He's trying to prove Aristotle wrong. Right. So, like, the, you know, so, so he acknowledges genius and then says, like, oh, well, I'm out to defeat the genius. And that's the whole. I think the whole canon, his whole catalog is essentially doing that. Yeah. I'm still stuck on Skill and Charybdis in the Mirror because oh, yeah. Bloom has like a tiny walk-on part in Skill and Charybdis, right? Yeah. I, and it's in there it's, somewhere, man. I don't know. I'm, I'm in the process of finding that, Tom. I, I won't be able to think of anything else until you do. <laughs> Should we pause? I don't, I don't want to pause. Well, right now, there, there's 51 references to the word mirror in the whole in the whole oh, novel, Jesus, and I'm only on five, so keep talking, guys. <laughs> um, what are you looking uh, you could look in the, uh, I have a PDF of it up. Oh. oh you yeah. can search it? The whole goddamn thing is here. These goddamn computers, man. It's Wait. Crazy. When did you get a PDF of the text? You just, I just Googled it like oh, two right. seconds ago. Oh, right on. <laughs> right, right on. <laughs> I want to I get, get my hands on that. All right. So moving through, right? Um, what is the first hallucination set piece? I guess it is the Watchmen then, right? Those first Watchmen? Um... Well, yeah, I mean, I if we're, if it's, we're, it's if, actually not. It's Sissy Caffrey. If, yeah, that's the thing. Like, yeah. it's it's right away you're thrown into this. I know this world where you've got calls and answers. You know, you've got children running around, the idiot. You know, so it's you're already I, me, wandering yeah. in the, the the funk of I this mean, chapter. I know what's going on because I've read this before. But even the first read, I go. Is Sissy Caffrey a horror? Like yeah. I don't think so. Like, yeah, and then, and like, that was my first like struggle. And just and in like, case you no. missed it, we we get Edie Boardman as well exactly. talking to Bertha Supple, who was mentioned in Nausicaa as well. I didn't know what the hell was going on. So, <laughs> so why then? I guess we'll start here. Right? Why then for Bloom? Given that this is Bloom's idea, or even if it's Joyce's subconscious right, yeah. idea, whatever it is, why are women horrors? You know these. These girls that take care of their kids on the beach or their brothers or whatever, right? I mean, there's something. Is it because the night turns everybody into well, horrors? How or about this? Right? I, I mean, I'm not making a big play that this is a big misogynist about- turn, but there's. I think it has something to do with the environments. It has something to do with like. It's the coming together of Stephen and Bloom, right? 
Boom has a deep sexuality. Um, Steven has great angst. Mm-hmm. When you put those two things together, what do you get? You get a prostitute, someone who you can't have true intimacy with and you have to be aggressive with. I don't know. That kind of makes sense. It seems befitting of the chapter. I don't think I, I, don't know that yeah, I agree that, with that. That one in, like, yellow and blue make green. Like, you're very simple. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I kind of, you know, Stephen has a lot of angst what? toward women, and I feel bad. I want to, like, you know, help the kid. <laughs> no, I, I feel that. And Bloom has a lot of sympathy. And Bloom also has a lot of, he, Bloom's in touch with. Um, the physicality of it, you know, he, he, he knows how to be sensual, the sensuality of it. You put those two things together and you have um, women who, you, you know, you're trying to be intimate with, but you, you don't know how to have a relationship because there's a border up. It, it's, that, I, think I think it's, I agree with that more, yeah, that, that, that the fact that prostitution for both of these men, because they cannot, Bloom cannot... You know, he cannot actually have sex with his wife. You know, he, right. we learn later that Bloom is, you know, jerking off incessantly. That is how he's oh, yeah. satisfying oh, yeah, himself. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in Ithaca, <laughs> you actually get the number of times he has in the last 11 <laughs> years. Um, but, uh, you know, so and we do get the sense that Bloom is seeing prostitutes. And Stephen, we know, is, yeah. right? And yeah. that's, that is, a, I, I like that, but I, I like also what you said earlier, Dave, that, so, this... This is where we see the fusing of of Bloom and Steven, unlike we've ever seen before. You know, like where Bloom or where Bloom is saying things that Steven has actually said, mm-hmm. and Steven is actually saying things that Bloom has actually said. And so the fact that you know we we are in Nighttown because of Steven, right? We're going to see some of Bloom's characters from the day, yeah. and they're going to be transformed into whores. And I, I don't know. I don't know if there's anything beyond that, other than the fact that uh, these were the women of Bloom's day. Yeah. Right. And then it's it also it works on a narrative device because suddenly you see that name, you're like, what is going on here? Like, yeah, yeah. You know, like you realize that by by magic anything can happen. The other interesting thing I thought was that it took Bloom. To engage Stephen's life before Stephen's mother could show up, right? Like it, like Stephen's mother shows up after Bloom actually reaches out and helps Stephen. Like the moment he connects his oh, life oh, to yeah, Stephen's yeah, life. Yeah, yeah, okay. I'm sorry, I jumped a lot, but much yeah, yeah. later in the chapter, that's when his mother shows up, and to me, that was kind of a very uh, amazing moment. That you know, really seemed like these two guys were connected on some kind of other level that we were subconscious level. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. very much a subconscious level yeah. because I don't I don't get the sense Steven seems no he seems no, dismissive. Steven. I mean he's drunk, yeah. but he also seems dismissive of like when Bloom is clearly helping him. I mean Steven almost gave all of his money, you know, to Bella and Bloom was right there helping like, dude, you're giving away too much money and Steve's mm-hmm. like, Well what the hell, you know? And so but on a subconscious level there there's a fusing there. Yeah. There's very much a fusing there. They mentioned metempsychosis, what, two or three times, maybe more? Oh, in this no, when, when somebody asked Patty Dignam, like, how can you be here? Uh, like, metempsychosis, <laughs> spooks. <laughs> and then a voice in the distance, oh, rocks. Yeah, that's Molly that's in the background. Molly. It's great. <laughs> so before I forget about that, right, is every time they're a voice, is that Molly? I don't think so. I think it's just a voice because sometimes I, it's no, voices. Well, yeah. yeah, but I thought a voice was always Molly because... They're in the first couple, I think, are distinctively Maui. That of Rob being an example of that. So I thought you could do that all the way through, but some of them it becomes more ambiguous as you go. And then she actually comes onto the stage. So why why right. do that? Right? Like it's not like you're well, going to hold her back. Well, I I think I know why you do that. Right? Um, because 
as Bloom gets deeper into this, he kind of he's okay with hearing her voice, right? He's he's still trying to kind of work out the trauma. Of what's, so would, wouldn't that be that she would just be a, a voice, 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 and then become Marion, or would it be that she's Marion and then just become sublimated as just a voice? No, I think the voice comes first. You know, this is right, but she's Marion, right? For the like, right, like one of the first things he sees is his dream of her in her in her Turkish trousers, right, with the camel. All right, but right. is there a difference? Right, I know, and he's been thinking about her all day. That's clear to me. But is there a difference between the the subconscious, you know, musings of him, you know, I mean, you know, I know Freud breaks these things down into like a deeper subconscious than like, you know, the pre-conscious or whatever. I don't young care too. for too much of that. Yeah, young, yeah. or maybe it's, it's young, actually more young. I think young. he's more young, yeah. But whatever that is, I mean, whatever we are experiencing in terms of subconscious up until this point goes deeper, right? Mm. Couldn't this be, ex- this is a different kind of thing. Like, who gets to speak... You know, who gets a kind of part in this kind of bloom psychodrama, I think might be something that we have to reevaluate in terms of his sublimation, in terms of... Yeah. Everything you're saying, I agree with. Oh, yeah, right. But the argument... You looked intense. I was going No. It's just the way my face looks. Um, I agree with all that, but for the fact that, you know, one of the first visions he has is of Marion as Marion. It's only later yeah. that you have the, the voice in the... But everything that you said is, is I think, correct. I think that you, you have, like, it does force us to reevaluate even what, like, you thought that in those first, you know, 14 chapters, or at least before Oxen of the Sun, that everything you're hearing is, like, honesty because it's interior monologue, right? right, right? right. Mm. But we fool ourselves no, all the time, right? And so this is, this is, you know, there's, there's no lying here. Right. And what, I mean, again, back to the idea of why a play, because you have the objectivity of a stage director setting things up like so you're at least the contrived quote-unquote objectivity and so you're suddenly seeing like this is perhaps what we all are feeling inside of ourselves you know what better way to interpret ourselves than the you know hopes and dreams and wishes and whatnot doesn't that seem a bit like a paradox when the narrative gets stripped away to its barest bones that's when we get to see the kind of deepest subconscious at work yeah I think like, that's why he's doing it. I think that's why yeah, the play yeah, is the no, perfect but, thing but right? doesn't it seem like a paradox like it almost doesn't seem like that would make sense to me because well, generally the narrative is what allows us to get deep in the consciousness right look uh, my favorite definition of personality or identity that I've ever heard I think it's John Searle the psychologist right he basically says all we are is the story we tell ourselves, the kind of living memory we can conjure up. I think Joyce knew this like 80 years before Searle was thinking about this. That's the thing. 50, I don't know, whatever. Right? Because That's why narrative is so important. That's why literature is so important. It gets taught to every kid, right? Because your ability to tell your story speaks to your future, right? Your ability to articulate the past creates a future for you, I think. I think. I don't know. Yeah. Talking to my ass um, but what happens if the stories we tell are lies, right? Yeah. Where does the truth live? Well, it must live deeper. Well, how do you explore do you that? that? Well, I don't think he, Bloom can, but Joyce can. Yeah. That's the move. Or maybe in Freud's perspective, a psychoanalyst sitting across from you laying on a couch can. So it's right? not really about Boom. It's about us reading it. It's, it's about, about Joyce. Boom. It's about, oh, all right. it's about, I think it's always about Joyce. <laughs> but, but if you want to go that route with the, you know, the whole purpose of digging deep and whatnot, looking for that catharsis and moving to the next level, battling the demons in your dreams, you do actually get that, at least with Bloom, right? In the sense that Bloom 
goes through almost in a, like a, you know, like he, he's purged, right? He's, he's literally purged. Like he's burned at the stake. He's crucified. He's whatever. And out of that, what does he get? He, he gets what he has been, what has been simmering through the whole novel. I mean, the, the, the real heartbreak in the novel beyond just the breakup of his marriage is, is Rudy. Yeah. Right. And that oh, vision yeah. at the end is like, it's so unexpected. Like it, you know, when I read this again, even though I've read this so many times, like it's like the one point in the novel where I really get choked up. And it, it, like, if you oh. don't, then you have no heart. And it's <laughs> after, after, after this Fantasia, you're not expecting that. But that last vision is such a, like, it just grabs you by the heart that it, it really is almost like, oh, okay. You know, he, he's, he's had a good session with his, his analyst because he's actually been able to, in taking care of Steven, it's like the, the bloom, you know, the father, the biological father bloom has finally merged with like the father described in skill and Charybdis, like the father of all his race, the father of all, like he's become the all father and, and he's happens, reached that point. His child comes back to him. Yeah. Right? That's well, like the reward. I always like to read that this is really all about the loss of that child, you know, all of the psychosexual problems and the reason they have an Without a Yeah, I mean, and this is evidence towards that. It, it's all about the grief that he yeah. can't deal with. Lotus Eaters, the idea that there's a rift between Bloom and Molly, that all comes back to the kid. Yeah, Lestragonians, they talk about that. Like, he, yep. He's explicit. Yeah, so I Lestragonians, like Lestragonians, right? I, yeah, I, I, Lestragonians is... There's, there's, there's some complicated shit in Very much so. What I mean is, uh, from, an emotion, from a pathos yeah. standpoint... Your connection to Bloom, I felt more connected to Bloom in Lestragonians than I, I felt in any chapter because I felt his pain in that yeah. chapter. That was where the rift was was made known to us yeah. between he and yeah. Molly, which yeah. was what I was, you know, asking about earlier in the book. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with you 100 percent on that, Dave. Yeah. I agree. I think the payoff in this chapter, when you get to the end, and as Josh just said, you know, you, you had this sort of moment, you know, of, of sort of sadness. I think it comes because you're set up. <laughs> Because you're lured in with with humor and absurdity, mm-hmm. and because you have this, and, and all, this comes out of nowhere, I think it it, it, it sort of jolts you. I, mean, I think you and I, Joe, had a long time ago. I don't remember. Uh, <laughs> remember, we had a conversation about Catch Twenty Two about you know the the, yeah. the whole thing, that, and all of a sudden, out of like, it's like maybe the oh. penultimate chapter or antepenultimate chapter, where out of with nowhere, apocalypse. You're, yeah, you're walking yeah. down the streets of, of wherever they are, and like there's just a sudden sadness over you're overcome yeah. with it. And but you just didn't expect it. That's why, because the whole time you're you're in this thing that's like you know just so wild and it's a uh, gut punch. I know, yeah, I know what you're know, talking and, about. And you yeah. only get the gut punch because you, you could have went the, the you know the cheap lugubrious uh, mawkish route and just beat that 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 sort of sad sort of tone the entire time. But you get you get bigger payoff when when you juxtapose it against something light, and then all of a sudden some some real true reality. How, how are that, the the, the, the the thing that gets me in Catch-22 is I think it's Yossarian's on the beach and they're watching some jackass ride his plane around and going too, too low. Yeah. And, and he's doing these dive bombs and everyone's like, what is he doing? Now nah, he's drunk and they're making fun of it. And it's hysterical. And then he decapitates somebody. And, and I remember <laughs> oh, just feeling shit. like shame. Like, <laughs> and I never felt so viscerally about a text before. And I was like, what the fuck just happened? I, I, I think you're getting the same thing at the yeah. end of this. Yeah. Yeah. God, that's a good book. Um, I, I felt the same choked up feelings too when Steven's mother came back in this chapter. I felt like that yeah, was it's dark, doing man. something similar. Yeah. And, but he's careful to undercut that yeah. with those, you know, 
bizarre things like, you know, the, the, you know, I pray for you in my other world and, and whatnot. And I, I, I don't know why, like, I don't know. And, and oh my God, like the funniest thing for me in the whole chapter is when Mulligan appears on the tower <laughs> well, with it. tears of molten butter <laughs> dripping into his split smoking scone. You know, it's, it's almost like a cartoon. Yeah. So it's, I, he's doing that on purpose because that, that would be the most mawkish thing, yeah. right? The appearance of his mother. He's very careful not to make that mawkish. Whereas in like, when you're reading in Telemachus, it really is haunting. Like it's yeah. like mm-hmm. because you're you're in a conventional novel at that point, and you well, you not know. All right, you're in a novel that's at least like portrait, right. so you're prepared yeah. for it. And you know, it's it's here where you know if the mother suddenly showed up and it was just that, it might seem like I think Rudy shows up and it's a vision and it's gone. He doesn't even speak. Yeah, doesn't even speak. Yeah. It's it's done perfectly. Yeah. Um, and I, I love, uh, it's not the Hamlet ghost father saying revenge, but it's the mom saying repent, <laughs> you know, like this poor kid, man. Yeah. Doesn't she, it. she springs up like, uh, <laughs> um, she springs up like from, uh, like from the floor, I think almost like the ghost of, uh, King Hamlet in mm-hmm. like the middle of the play. Right. Cause does, isn't there a scene where King Hamlet Basically. shows up and only Prince Hamlet can see him? Are you talking right. about in this? Part? No, no, in, in Hamlet. Oh, right? I hope I didn't miss that. No, no, it's been a while since I've read <laughs> Hamlet. But is five is is a confrontation between Hamlet and he's Hamlet's isn't he father. talking to Gertrude? No, and that's his later. Father in the play. is that's what I mean. Not in the beginning. Right. Like, Act Because there's there's a point at which like the beginning of the play, everyone sees the ghost. Like yeah. it's not just Hamlet it's who sees the ghost. It's Act Four, Scene right. Three. Where, right. Where, yeah. I don't know, but yeah, yeah, where where he's with Gertrude, and then he sees, but his he sees his father, but only he could yes. see his father. And yeah. I think I remember reading in the Gifford commentary that the description of the mother rising up through the floor is almost the same language oh, as uh, King Hamlet rising, because only Stephen, of course, can see the ghost of his mother. Right. I think that scene can be played a couple of ways, though. You could play a Gertrude in denial. You know, the, oh, the sure. language that she uses is, you know, what are you talking about? What is this madness? You know, but you could play that as like, oh, I, I, I'm so deep into, you know, just being with Claudius and doing my thing that I'm going to just block this out, mm-hmm. which is interesting. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there isn't doesn't Patty Dignam also see like list list yeah. oh list too right so they're playing they're preparing yeah. you for that mother ghost at the end as well I think you know. so all right so we move around we we get um some conversation between Stephen and Lynch right and I think that's all real world stuff who's Rudolph in the beginning um, his father his father oh, okay yeah uh, Ver Ver Verag Verag is Grand the grandfather Fine. get Rudolph get Bloom gets Rudy right. The, um, uh, th- there's a passage in, um, right after Lynch on, on 433 that I thought was interesting, the convex and concave mirrors. And I feel like, I don't, I feel like it's a key into understanding this or something like that, but I don't know what to do with it. Um, a concave mirror at the side presents him, lovelorn, long lost, lugabru, bluhum, uh, great gladstone sees him level, bloom for bloom, he passes, Struck by the stare of truculent Wellington, but in a convex mirror, grin unstuck, the bon, Bonheim eyes and uh, fat chuck cheek chops of jo- Jolly Poldy and Rick's Dick's Doldy. So you have a sense of, right, I feel like, like the convex and concave ideas are distortions of yeah. self, which are, is exactly what we're seeing in yeah. a way. We're seeing Bloom 
convex and concave. Yeah. I don't think it speaks to him and his ability to see himself or anything like that. I think Not that he is actually seeing himself in those mirrors. I think he's walking well, yeah. past actual mirrors that are distorting him, but that's the introduction I'm talking metaphorically. <laughs> right, metaphorically. This is how we're going to see Bloom. We're going to we're going to see right. Bloom in Funhouse mirrors in this. Yeah. this we're going to see everybody in Funhouse mirrors, but especially Bloom. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's good stuff. You know what I mean? Those little kind of like hints as to here's what's really going on, mm-hmm. I think. Um, and how about the sound of the language kind of capturing the sense of what we're actually meant to think, you know? The sound is fragmenting and playing with his name and the variations of the sounds in much the same way that our images of him are going to be, you know, distorted and fragmented. Yeah. I love that. So at this point, this is actually Boone catching up with Stephen Lynch, correct? Yeah, it's one of those, it's another one of those gaps. Yeah. Right? We don't know. Something obviously happened at the Westland Row station, and there's some cool theories yeah. about that. Oh, really? One of which is, uh, um, you know, Stephen keeps complaining about his hand. Like, throughout this, he keeps talking about how his hand hurts, and he doesn't yeah. know why, right? And I always took that when, uh, this is getting way ahead, but when, uh, you know, they're doing the palm reading, and uh, Zoe right. says, I see it in your eye, and then he's thinking of his hand, automatically pops out of the coffin lid of the pianola, the jack-in-the-box head of uh, Father Dolan, right. you know, any boy here want a pandy? Oh, because he's right. Handy. right. And oh. so, but, <laughs> but there's also something else going on. Stephen complains about his hand, even in Eumaeus. And so there's, uh, Hugh Kenner's got a cool idea that why is Stephen hand, why does Stephen's hand hurt? And why does he have no memory about what happened other than he was shit faced drunk? He punched Mulligan. He finally <laughs> punched Mulligan. <laughs> and his hand, his hand really, his hand is hurting the whole time. Why does Joyce bring up the fact that Stephen's hand hurts like something like 10 times in Cersei and Eumaeus to constantly remind us of that. And when Bloom talks about in Eumaeus what happened, and the only reason why I'm talking about this is it is what bridges the gap between yeah. Oxen and this episode. Because it's like an hour, right? Right, something like that. Something like that. Because uh, closing time's 11, right. and it's now midnight. Um, what Bloom sees at the station is Haynes and Mulligan running away from Stephen. Mm. Why else would they be? Why would they actually be running from him unless Stephen had actually struck him? Like fuck this, we're out of here. Yeah, and and by this point in the text, Stephen knows he can't go home to the tower. Now that he was probably planning to, I think we get into Lemicus. He's probably not going to go back. But I believe there's a couple references that. There's just, you can't. Yeah. And that's the other thing. So that's another one of the mysteries. What were they doing at Westland Row Station? Because remember, Mulligan's and Haynes, or Mulligan rather, not Haynes is even with them, but Mulligan skips out on the drinking, right, to to go off with the, I guess, Bannon or whatnot, and to get off before the money has to come out, right? You know, it's clearly that he's leaving them. Why are they ending up at the same station? Because to get to Sandy Cove and to get to Night Town, you're ultimately going to hit the same, you're going to have to use the same station or something like that. Yeah. Uh, I love those no, little ideas of trying great. to fill in the gaps. I think it's, it's, it's really fun. interesting. <clears throat> because, uh, you know, why else put that clue in there that his hand is always yeah. hurting? I don't even know why we started talking about that. I apologize. I know. I, that cool? I don't know. I was on page 448. Lo and behold, he's on 433. <laughs> I don't know, man. Dude, his chat is 200 right. pages. So, so when we, we get Bloom meeting... Stephen and Lynch, and this starts like a whole series of hallucinations, right? We get Rudolph, we get Marion, we get all these characters here. Yeah, he hasn't met them yet. Well, I mean, he's still getting there. He's still trying to chase after, right? Yeah. Um, So why, right? Now let's start getting the kind of psychology, right? Are these all people? I like what you're saying here. Are are these people that he is chasing in a way? You know what I mean? Is that what is going to key this in? What struck me about this reading of 
Rudolph seems pretty harsh to Bloom, right? His father, and I don't think that's the impression that we have given. Uh, we are given throughout the whole text leading up to this. You know, we get a, a fairly you know, poor Papa. You know, things like that. But deep down, um, yeah, I'm not saying that. Yeah. I mean, you don't get that. I, I get the sense it's it's him looking at his father from when he was a kid and did something bad, right? What, it seems like a kind of a what are you making thing. down this place? Have you no soul, right? This is. Rudolph talking to Bloom. Yeah. Right? I mean, there, there seems to be an edge to that. Are you not my son, Leopold, the grandson of Leopold? Right? He, he's, but you know what that is, right? That's that's direct quote from Leo, or the, the play that he was thinking about back in... Uh, shit, Dave, help me out. I didn't know this, but I don't give a shit because he's assigning it to <laughs> Rudolph at this point. Right. But it you is... I mean? it that's is, that's, it's that's this, the meaningful right. part. But what I'm saying is, we've already been prepared for this. Bloom's already... Bloom already bears some guilt that he's not a practicing Jew. We've seen hints of that. That he feels yeah. disconnected. And I think we're getting that here. Good. But but Bloom himself is even commenting when he says, I suppose so, Father. Mosenthal. Like, he calls attention to the... That's the author that wrote those very lines. So it's like... He's he's seeing his father in that guise of feeling guilty about not practicing, but it's also yeah. tempered with the, you know, Dad. Yeah, I suppose so. I, and I it's also sounds sheepish. Sounds sounds be like a, well, he's because he's, a, he, he's being cha- uh, you know chastised by an authority figure. Oh, I don't doubt that yeah. absolutely. But he's also got you know two things that are not kosher that he just bought. That's part of it, right? Yeah, yeah. You know. He also feel remember, and what, what sparks it is, I think he doesn't he feel some guilt for buying it, not because it's not kosher, but like, why did I waste my money? And then he got a stage Jew come on, right? And that we have to talk about that. There's a comic level of this. This is a stereotype of like oh, yeah, the, of the you of know, the, the the Jewish man who doesn't like to spend money and even the accent seems like it's it's meant to be, you know, comical in an offensive sort of way. And then when his mom comes on, right. you know, that one awesome detail here is this is the first time we learn, oh, you know, he's actually not fully Jewish. Like, his mother is actually, you know, stage Irish woman because she also behaves in a very, you know, what's the stereotypical way in her grief. But it seems like a kid caught doing something bad, right? Like, I, no, like, that, that's yeah. what I'm suggesting, right? So, so why is that? You know, I think I, I'm not even suggesting that this is the real relationship they had in the past. Who knows? At this point in Bloom's journey, right, <clears throat> he's feeling inferior. He's feeling a little guilt. Like, yeah, the guilt has started. Yeah. Well, sexual repression, which we talked about, was a big theme. But the other theme that I mentioned was this guilt thing that's lingering. He's yeah. guilty. He's fearful of retribution for the things that he's done wrong in his life. That, I think that's huge. And yeah. that's, why he's gonna, that's where the trial's coming yeah. from. That's where he's got to pay for something. Now, whether that, that's because... Yeah. His values don't match with the, 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 the values of Dublin or the values of the typical Catholic or the values of someone in the, at the start of the 20th century or whatever. And, you know, cause I mean, Bloom is a progressive person. So maybe he, this is, this is doubt. So what is the guilt from? I mean, what, what's just triggering it? What do you mean? What, everything. Yeah. His, his existence. Yeah. We've been in his head. He's different from everybody else because he resides on the margins. He's not Catholic. He's not, you know, you list anything. Uh, about that, you know, the fin de siècle European world. He, because he is a reflection of, we've been talking about Joyce is ahead of his time. Joyce, Bloom is is, is taking some of that, uh, you know. I get general anxiety from all of that, but, but guilt seems more specific. Yeah, I think he's got guilt, though, for the fact that he can't consummate the rest of his marriage. Well, that's what I, I was think thinking. He's got I think guilt. might be... I think he's got guilt for, you know, thinking uh-huh. that, uh, you know, he he's not 
part of a culture that he should be. I think there is some of that guilt. I think he feels that though he's way ahead of his time, I think he feels guilt that perhaps he yeah. could not have saved, yeah, saved his ideas. father, yeah. right? He feels guilt about the yeah. suicide. When the father appears, he still has the poison streak. So, you know, it's, you know, there's, there's guilt. It's not just anxiety. Yeah. It's guilt. Because, it, you know, this sort of this benthic level of the consciousness it's going to dig up the the, the, the the very sort of, you know, the, the dark, salacious stuff, but it's also going to yeah. dig up the self-doubt, and the self-doubt gives you the, the guilt. But I like that it starts. The only point that I was making, Joe, as far as disagreeing with you somewhat, is I like that it starts small, right? It starts yeah, with, like, right. what I seems agree. like, what are you doing here? It doesn't start, yeah. like, the and even the what sounds like it would be very heavy, the, like... You know, are you not my son, Leopold, the grandson of Leopold? Are you not my dear son who left the house of his... The fact that that is already canned dialogue from a play that he thought of as a connection with his father, it's it's not... Like it's, it's already cut by that so that we're not, we're not in, like, super, like, pathos right at the very beginning, right? That could be playful. Right. It, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I think it's it's getting us into it. Like, it's it almost seems... Like, if Bloom's going to feel guilty for wandering around in nighttime and it's not going to be Molly, it's probably going to be his dad. You know, his dad saying, what are you doing here? Because there's also guilt, like, here he is in nighttown and he's not there for what everyone else is. So does that follow through with all of these characters in the sequence? I, I think well, perhaps, let's see. are they all kind of, like, ideas of guilt or anxiety, whatever you want to call it, right? You get... The two parents, you get Marion. This all makes sense. You get uh, Bertie, uh, Mrs. Breen, and Gertie, right? I, I think so. I think you can apply, you know, maybe explicit or implicit sins of the past in all of them. Guilt, yeah. guilt, but also um, wish fulfillment. Because I think there, there clearly was something there between him and the former Josie Powell, right? Mrs. Mm-hmm. Breen. And I think, right. Cause I don't think there's necessarily, there's not guilt there. It's, it's something that it's an alternative to Molly. Like what would life have been had I chosen that? Well, isn't right? wish fulfillment and guilt kind of in a dialectic with each yeah, other, I, you know? I would, I don't doubt that. I would yeah, think I would so, so. You know, I would, I would think this idea of wanting and, and then feeling guilty for that, uh, I, that makes a lot of sense. The soap is in the sequence. Is it? Yeah, the yeah. soap says, we're, we're oh, a the soap couple, our Bloom and I. Yeah. We brighten the earth, I polish the sky. It rises in the sun. <laughs> and it has Sweeney's face in the center, almost like a Christ-like figure. Yeah. Oh, hey, we didn't talk about that. There's there's guilt that he was supposed to pick up Molly's uh, lotion. Remember, isn't that the first thing he says to her? Like, oh, you know, I was just thinking, you know, the shop closed early, so I was going to get an early start. Yeah. So we have this kind of conversation with um, with Breen. You go into Richie, right? There's this is all extended. I think it starts to break when we get to um, when we get to Stephen, right? Bloom has thoughts about Stephen. Well, what about the watch? The first and second watch? Did yeah, you I guess that? we get them too. Um, what is that? That's uh, well, that's that's the first. Big stage piece of uh, so. Bloom on trial, right. right? When he decides to feed the dogs, he gives up the the, the sheep's foot and the pig's foot to the dog, the protein dog. Four, we haven't even talked about four fifty three, four fifty one fifty. Are you four fifty one fifty two? Where yeah. does he give the dog the food? I guess it's yeah four fifty two four fifty three is when he gives the dog the food. I right. was talking about four fifty two though. Um, where Bloom thinks about 
Stephen and thinks about oh you're saying whether well, okay, or not yeah, yeah. what um, what what's the segue into this right. whole thing what, okay. um, was this a chance meeting you know it's almost like a, a little bit of rumination on you know the nature of chance um, yeah that almost that calls attention to what I think we all identified as it like a one possible weak plot point of why is Bloom actually in the maternity ward in the first place, yeah, right? Yeah. And the fact that Joyce actually calls attention to it, right. like, you know, still he's the best of the lot. If I hadn't heard about Miss Bufoy, Purefoy, I wouldn't have gone and wouldn't have met Kismet. Like, it's almost like snub, snubbing us, you know, rubbing our nose in it. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you thought that was, uh, you know, an artificial plot device. Yeah, you know, well, hey, it happened, all right? Yeah. But, and... and hmm. All right. Yeah, I'm gonna. I'm gonna <laughs> all right. Yeah, so that brings on you know the the dog, and we get into the watch. And you're saying this doesn't happen, huh? Uh, what the the actual? You think the watch really walks up to him and declines his name in Latin? Bloom of Bloom for no, Bloom. Bloom. No, I don't think he says that. But I think there is an interaction with them. You know what I mean? I don't think that comes out of the blue. I think. If there is any interaction, it's, uh, hey, you shouldn't be feeding stray dogs. And that's it. Right? Yeah. I, but I don't, I don't think it's as clear as that. I don't know. I just, I see it no. as more like a, like me and the, the cop on the corner, you know, like, you know, hey, I'm not doing anything wrong. You're not doing anything wrong. And then what if, you know, what if be, I was... It could be as simple as just yeah. seeing them over there. I yeah. agree with you. I don't, I don't know, know that it matters. Yeah, I don't think it matters either. <laughs> Um, I certainly don't think, I will say this though, I certainly don't think that they're interrogating him, he takes off his hat and his card falls out and that, like, I think that's all just, that's more of his, his guilt and, and the idea of the kind of fear and repression of his hidden life being brought out for all to see, right? It's, it's important that his hat, when he takes off his hat, you know, the card card falls falls. out, they see and they, oh, you're Henry Flower with no fixed abode. Right. By the way, I, I love the, um. Costume changes, yeah. like constantly. <laughs> you know, uh, they, 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 these long descriptions of like these. Three, all of a sudden, you're wearing right, which is so theatrical. Well, it, not only that, it also connects you back to Blaze's Boylan. Remember, they kept talking yeah, about Boylan's yeah, yeah. dress. You know, all of a sudden now, Bloom's the kind of man of the hour, or or the guy on the show. <laughs> the reeds have a line, and the gulls have a line. You know, what's funny is like. Even if you want to try to buy into the realism of this moment, let's just say, like, oh, the watch is real. You know, the first watch, second watch, these guys are really here. But the wreaths are talking, and the gulls are, are, are talking as well. Like, you know, he, he undercuts so much. And, and in reading this, like, for the first time, if you've read, say you really did read all those chapters beforehand, like, with the intensity that we have all read them for this podcast, right? And we're ready for, like, expecting the unexpected and the expected mm-hmm. here. Like in this page turn right here, four fifty three, because this is this actually did happen to me, but it does didn't happen much else. Page four fifty three, when I was reading this for the first time, you know, not mm-hmm. for the first time, but like for doing this podcast. As soon as I got to the friend of man trained by kindness, like Bob Doran's going to show up on the next page because that's the end. Lo and behold, hey, there's Bob Doran. Like I even wrote a note like trained by kindness. See Bob Doran in Cyclops. Turn the page. He points. Bob Doran toppling from a height, like oh my god, <laughs> like you, like cruelty to animals. Of course, you're gonna have Senor Mafe, Ruby, <laughs> Pride of the Ring, show up, and I have the Indian stare or whatever he says. He had a lot of good um, transitions from things, um, you know, throughout this play. Like 
there's this one section where he's listing a ton of people and the last person is like the nameless one. Yeah. And then who has the first line? The nameless one. <laughs> by God, by God, he, she's the, he's the one to settle. <laughs> yeah. Of all the people, he gets the first line. <laughs> so all of this leads us into the court scene, right? Yeah. Which I think starts around 458. By the way, the court scene made me think of the last episode of Seinfeld. <laughs> Do you remember that? When they were just bringing back all these people yeah, uh, through his life, though. right? They're bringing witnesses. Yeah. They were, they're, but, they're, but they're all these people that Jerry kind of knew throughout his life, and that was kind of like what was happening to Bloom here. Not a good episode. I, but I'm not, like I'm not saying it's a episode. Yeah, I'm right, not saying yeah. it's a good episode, but it, it totally like it. Oh, it's the greatest show ever. But it's worth it because then it's such a punchline for a Kirby enthusiasm where they keep bringing that up. <laughs> um, so the court team seems to be explicitly about women and Bloom's treatment of women, right? Mm-hmm. And his sexuality. Know, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, like he seems to hold so much guilt about. I mean, you know, I think probably primarily Marion and not being able to yes. to have sex with her. But it, it's being expressed through all of these casual Right. I, I think uh, there's I don't think there's guilt that he's sending no, dirty letters to people. I think the guilt is that he's sublimating his you know, his sexuality in you know, to in these sort of ways because he has lost that relationship with his wife. But you know, a woman whose sensual charms he will rhapsodize about and yet he can't connect with it. Right? I think that's the guilt. There's, I mean, there's one point in here that's as heartrending as, uh, excuse me, I'm hiccuping, um, as the Rudy sequence, and I think it's actually when Bello is... Uh, you know, torturing him where, well, we'll get to that later. But at one point he actually says, Maul, you know, it's not too late. Maul, you know, you know, it's, that's, that's clearly the source or prime source of this guilt, despair, anxiety, wish fulfillment. Mm -hmm. We can probably chalk that out to general, you know, expectations of masculinity too, Mm -hmm. you know. (laughs) That's certainly played with, I mean, the comparison of him and uh, Boylan. With his, oh my god! Uh, when he, where he war, has to when he has to watch basically yeah. be there. That's ter- that took me yeah. back like yeah. top three worst scenes of Joyce Long yeah. with the Dead. End of the Dead. You mean worse in terms of like as in I don't want to have to like read this. <laughs> it was terrible. But, but at least you had uh, Miss Kennedy and Miss Deuce oh. providing light commentary. Like, you <laughs> no, can hear man. them all the way in New York and Paris. I <laughs> know, uh, man. That was like, terrible. You, from his perspective, I get the sense that it's not all unpleasant either. You know, that no, not at all. He's getting off on he was. the kink of it, yeah. right? Um, it's completely is it clear that way because it, I think it's, it's debatable that it, it, I think debatable. It, is it, that's all I'm suggesting. The, the fact that it is debatable, though, it is, is complicated. Yeah. There is, and some of the kink he does embrace. Like for example, when he describes, "Look, I've got my first taste of dressing up when I was in that yeah. play." Vice versa, and remember at one point. Um, Virig is, you know, coughing up like his nonsensical things and says, Jer, who's Jer? Who's dear Jer? Like, what the heck is he talking about? 14 pages later, he, you know, Bloom himself says, it was dear Gerald who introduced me to the joys of cross-dressing. Like, oh. <laughs> so I think, I think the fact that it is, like we were talking about when we read Exiles, like there's clearly some... You know, desire to see this. I mean, look, some of this, like a lot of these, a lot of these hallucinations, you don't know what's real, what's not. But like when you describe, like you're accused of, you know, riding up in public lavatories. You know, I offer my conjugal partner to any strong-membered male. 
you wonder, like, did Bloom, like, in a weird fit of passion, sublimated passion, <laughs> actually write that on a wall? Maybe. There's a ton of exiles in this text, I think. I, You know, I'm really... One of the great things about what we did by cataloging this, you know, these these texts is is having read exiles you could see the mind of Joyce trying to work through those ideas and here of course it's blown out into much more complicated ways but there's exiles through and through in this text. I think I think our read of exiles had we done this discussion first and then read exiles would have been even more of a kind of like ah sure you know I see this is the nascent (laughs) you know this is the development of it but it's just done so you know it's done much more much poorly I can't well, speak, you know it's done. It, it's not. It's done in a much more inferior way. And the ir- irony is, it's a play. Yeah, you know that's well, here. You, we here we see how to write. You know, a play like what he was really going you, for. You know what I would I would kind of characterize that in the life of Joyce is like here's a guy who was obviously obsessed and troubled and and working through ideas. And that yeah. play was just a bit of a holding pattern. He was kind of working them through, and that wasn't what he really wanted to write. Ulysses is clearly what he was getting to, but Exiles might have helped him get there. Yeah, and I, I, I actually reel back exactly what what I just said before because you're right. Like it's 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 an, you know, it's clearly an it's, it's it's Ibsen. Like it's it's an yeah. attempt to do, and sirs, I was just yeah. saying, well, this is what he really. No, no, this is very different. Like yeah. this is you've transcended your influence of Ibsen, and you're doing something very different. Yeah, yeah. I think that's right. Yeah, I should think before I speak. We need you, buddy. We need you. So, <laughs> let's talk about the jury box. Um, so, all of this seems to be, right, it, it's all sparked by the authority of the Watchmen. I'm going to go with that, you know. Or, you know, it's a general sense of authority, you know, and fear because of that. So, the jury box, I think, what is it about all these men? You know, right? They're all people that seem to be his peers, but have a kind of, I don't know, more socially acceptable hold than he does, right? They're all people that have, I think, commented on him, or I'm on a 469 into 470, right? You get uh, Martin Cunningham, Jack Power, Simon Daedalus, Tom Kiernan, Ned Lambert, John Henry Menton, Miles Crawford, Lenahan, Patty Leonard, mm. Nosy Flynn, McCoy and the Nameless One, <laughs> the, the featureless face. The featureless face. And then who but does? all of those guys should be his peers, but but they've all but, they've all already been judging him this whole novel, exactly. so they yeah, might as well exactly. finally show up in the the jury box. Yeah. Was there a, a Velvet Underground reference? And is that Venus of Furs? Is that the song? Venus of Furs is a novel. Oh, all right. Um, I, I read it. Right? You ever read it? No. Well, no. yeah, Masuk is Mas, Mas, right, that's where you get masochism from. That's what the year? author. Uh, 18 something. 1880s, I think. Uh, yeah, 70s, 80s. Okay. Um, I mean, you know, if you read it now, it's it's fairly tame, mm-hmm. you know, but it's like, I guess, the, the big text of S&M. Mm-hmm. You don't have to read it now because, like, the, it, my sense of it is this is, like, Bloom, you know, Bloom's torture through Bella Bellow is basically, you know, commentary and yeah. riffing on that very idea. In fact, some of the dialogue is apparently taken right from it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's you know, it's a very, you know, overwrought, you know, like, and then she, you know... Uh, now you will feel the force of my exactly. heel upon your neck. And <laughs> exactly. I shall be your... Ma- like, at one point when one of the... Uh, <laughs> One of the women that's accusing him says something like, you have released my inner tiger. Yeah. Apparently that's like that's ripped exactly right it. from, you know, Wanda in Venus and Furs. What's interesting about that book, though, <laughs> is, um, you, you know, at first it becomes just 
spanking and you know your basic kind of Friday you know, night. Phys- oh, sorry, <laughs> your basic kind of uh, physical pleasure or pain, you know, play. Um, but then it gets into like he gives over all rights to you know his property. Then he gives over like you know a contract to be her, her slave. Then it becomes you know you can kill me at any time, right? It's like it's really about kind of losing yourself to losing the woman. control. Completely giving up control, right? Yeah. I mean, what happens when you do that, right? You you don't you lose your identity. Well, you lose and, your identity, but you also lose responsibility, yeah. right? That's the the high point is you don't, have, you don't have to worry about you don't have to worry about day decisions. Yeah. You don't have to worry about guilt. Yeah, no, you don't have to worry about guilt. Right. There's no you, guilt. You become animalized. You just become a kind of behavioralist product. You mean like like being turned into a pig by the magic of a witch? Well, I think so, right? That's what I'm yeah. getting at. <laughs> right? Um, you, you know, the, right, the, I, I don't, I assure you I'm not part of this world, but from what I hear, um, you know, like, like, powerful men generally like to do this because it's kind of a release valve, right? You hear this, like, they'll go to you know, uh, I, I guess professional uh, S and M, you know, specialists that can take you out of the stresses of your life, the responsibilities of your life. There's an interesting comment then on that because what does Bello promise Bloom the whore? Right, that everything will be taken care of for you. You're going to basically be exactly. working in my brothel. You will be clothed. You will have this. You've got your jobs assigned to you. You know, so there is this weird freedom in that complete servitude. The next phase after this. Section, yeah, I jumped right? to No, no, but I mean like yeah. that comes in yeah. response, yeah. right? Yeah. In response to the overwhelming guilt. Well, in between we have the hanging. Uh, okay, right. Right. Yeah. The, well, the we have the new Muslim and then we have the yeah. Wait, well. No. No, he's he's that's, that's right. The hanging comes first and then the then we have then we have Bloom, the social reformer slash president yeah. slash king slash pope slash whatever. <laughs> right. So, so what do you make of those shifts, right? Because we're still in the same kind of uh, hallucination sequence here, mm-hmm. right? We haven't even gotten to those. Yeah, dude, we're still on page four seventy one. I know we're getting there. Um, there's, uh, I mean, what do, what do you make of that that kind of shift? Uh, I think it's interesting. It comes after the death, right? Exactly. You know, it's so a this rebirth. Is, this is the, the the resurrection into something, into some some more perfect being, I guess. Could it be that this is the, this first section is just the, we're just getting to the tip of the iceberg, right? We're just getting, like, what are the, what are the... Well, we're sinking down. Right, I'm sorry. We're, into the depth of the iceberg. Shitty, uh, shitty metaphor, I apologize. <laughs> we are just scratching the surface here. Um, wh- what are the things that Bloom knows that he could be criticized for on just an outer level? They are the sending of explicit letters, soliciting typists mm-hmm. through newspapers and things like that. So what is he accused of? He's accused of those very things by these either existent or non-existent society women, right? And then, then you know, so, that's, wait, so that we, we have that first trial for that. So and then, then we move... Uh, Boylan's secretary oh. actually possibly comes up because there is a Miss Dunn in Wandering Rocks that's Boylan's secretary, but her name is spelled slightly differently. And then when Bloom's sins of the past rise up, I forget, I think that's when Bello Bella's interrogating him. There is a Miss Dunn, but spelled without an E, but she works on a street (laughs) where there was an advertising company, which is what Boylan does, so it is possible. Ah, But no, the typist I was talking about was the Martha Clifford, right? 
Um, my point is, though, this is this is we've just scratched the surface here. So, so you, we have we have trial number one, one and now we're going to go down even further and get to desires and anxieties and guilt that have been even further sublimated. Yeah, it's a lot easier to feel guilty about the dirty letters that you wrote to other people and the the st- other stuff that you've done. But then you start getting to the deeper shit, like the paying off a whore to give you you know soiled toilet paper that yeah. you can smell or all these other things, all these other kinks that have been even, we didn't even know about, right? But we're starting to get there. So then we have another, we have, you know, Bloom meets Zoe. Zoe says, talk until you're uh, you know, blue in the face when he talks about the ills of smoking and there's better things you can do with, you know, your mouth. Mm-hmm. And then we have, you know, Bloom, the social reformer, and then another, you know, trial. They turn against him like Parnell. So it's almost like each time has to be a, a trial of bloom. We have three. We have three trials yeah, of yeah. bloom, right? Yeah. We have this first one for the exterior stuff, the the letters. Then we have the um, for the second one. It's harder to gauge, but it almost seems like bloom visiting prostitutes, maybe because he's actually interacting with the prostitutes. I don't know. Uh, bloom on trial for his utopian vision, maybe. And then we have you know the climax with. Bello, Bella, where it really like all stops are out. That's we even have nymphs walking out of you know picture frames to accuse him of the dirty things that have gone on in the room. Yeah. So I like so yeah. I think I think it gets more it gets deeper as you go right. And if you think about the um, the structures like a courtroom, even even the hanging, right? These are all kind of uh, constructs of civilization. You know what I mean? It's a way to kind of. Frame a fantasy of these things in a kind of safe narrative space, almost. Yeah, the first you know? two are. Yeah, and then by the time mm-hmm. you're at the end, right, the, the imagery of the trials gets stranger and stranger, less able to control, less able to. No, no, no. I'm yeah, agreeing. Let me finish. Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. I, I'm disagreeing, yeah. and I get. I think you get the sense at the end too that there's a kind of slow coming out of the hallucination too. When we're on the street. Things start to get more realistic yeah. and and less hallucinatory um, as Bloom is, uh, you know, getting Stephen out of his bind or whatever. And also, there, there is a kind of I think reverse arc happening. Also, yeah. when Bloom's, you know, when Bloom comes, out, when Bloom takes the Ulysses role, the Odysseus role, and actually enters the the court of Circe and threatens to strike her, mm-hmm. like Odysseus does. Yeah, this doesn't happen until Bloom's button pops off, right? And that's when he takes control of his, you know, manhood and the visions and whatnot. And then we start getting the visions that Stephen has, right? But have, he, is Bloom doing that for himself? I don't know, but I'm just saying the way the narrative. I'm saying where the narrative works. Yeah. I I don't know. No, I think no. I think St- Bloom has to come out of this as well. Bloom's on trial here. Not just in his visions, but in this chapter, and he's got to come through it. When he finally it, vanquishes her, though, it's it's in Stephen's behalf. Am I right on that? Um, it's because it's because she's taking advantage. The next of him. no, the next thing happens with the the money happens after that. Is that but after first in the vision, he turns upon like it's no longer Bella or Bello right. torturing him. It's the nymph and the sins of his childhood. Yeah. I mean, masturbation is a huge thing here. Sure. Masturbation is the ultimate killing of the oxen of the sun and fertility. You shouldn't be masturbating. You should be, you know, 
plowing this. Um, this we, we don't need to point <laughs> fingers here. This is a podcast. This is not a judgment on, obviously, it's not a judgment on masturbation, but I'm saying Bloom feels that he should be, uh, I know, this can't go anywhere. No, no, keep going. <laughs> no, we're going to keep going. 12. Oh. <laughs> I didn't even know the joke was happening. Early on, now I feel like such a dude. No, 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 trying no, to be serious. No, no. So, like in the Calypso episode, right? Bloom goes to his backyard. And he talks about how his backyard is, is kind of fallow, right? Sure. You need some seed, right? Sure. So that's you know kind of on the nose if you're not already prepared for it. But now we look back on like, whoa, right? That's the problem here. And then when we learn in Ithaca that all he's been doing for the past eleven years is you know to use the word again, sublimating this <clears throat> desire for Molly through either masturbation or, or these fantasy letters or goodness knows what else, you know, that's the fact that we have this childhood scene of him on a high school trip, yeah. you know, jerking off in some right. field, <laughs> you know, that shouldn't be like, that's like the last crime that he's accused of. So it seems weird that that's, that's what we're ending on. Like the, the nymph is like, oh my God, on the grass. And, yeah. and, but that's where it began. Like the idea of this, this guilt of not being able to perform as a man like Boylan is able to. One of the hardest things to hear is also in one of the goofiest and kind of outlandish funny things when Bello is saying to him like, Oh, Eccles Street, sorry to let you know this, but there's a man in charge there, and, you know, he's got a rod with warts and knobs and whatnot, and then what's, that's, okay, that's awful, but what is he talking about? Oh, and there's also a ginger-haired child coughing up her womb right now, like, Boylan is doing the thing that he can't do. So, I think that last, that, once Bloom gets past that, once he conquers that nymph, who curiously turns into the nun he's, whose name he couldn't remember in <laughs> Les Dragonians, but he was haggling with her for money, but then he finally gets her on the money and, and vanquishes her, that's when we have the money show up, and that's when he takes charge for Steven. But he's got to conquer those demons first, yeah, I get and then my... we're on to Steven. Right. So I'm just, I'm just trying to trace that, that arc. I was I using that right. shitty metaphor of icebergs, but now no, we're, down at the, we're down at the bottom of the iceberg. When was he masturbating out in the fields? That's what the ewes and the, the, the nymph were uh, is he accusing. Is he the old jostler from the encounter? No, because he's one of the kids. <laughs> oh, oh, he's, yeah, he's one of the kids. Uh, well, here's the, here's the interesting thing, is at the end of Lotus Eaters, at a time when I was actually expecting him to masturbate, yeah. he doesn't. Yeah. He talks about the, fa- the limp father of thousands, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. But and he just kind of looks at it and embraces it, yeah. but doesn't do it. And we were prepared to think he was going to I, I was remember even well, ready for it. But even in Lotus Eaters, like right before that, he, he contemplates doing we it. We don't he know that right? he doesn't until Nausicaa. Yeah. Okay. Nausicaa. Yeah. Yeah. But so most of this stuff is really happening, you know, not on the page, right? We're not really we're only getting glimpses of it, obviously. Hey, what do you mean? Uh you know, uh Bloom, Bloom and his masturbation. And, and, and no, they're, they're, they talk about it explicitly. They do, right? Oh, no, yeah. not this. I thing. mean, they don't say like you were jerking off on the, right. the but like the use are saying, and he did it on our virgin sward, and and the, the <laughs> none of this is. He's talking about the past. None right, of this right. happening to yeah. This, no, no, I get that. The I only, only childhood memory is is with Gertie on the beach. Okay, yeah. but he does do that then, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah right. okay. There's no doubt. Once and, a day. and that's why, I mean, we can go all the way back to Proteus. That's why I like the idea that Stephen did it on the beach as well, you know what I mean? Because it's just another way to tie them in. I know, I don't he, think he really... Pissed, he pissed, I, yeah, I know, but we yeah, talk, okay. but it's put in terms of that, um, you know? 
and and it's creating this kind of I don't know male bond between them in some strange way. <laughs> why strange? Why judge? Look, you know that's why you don't like Proteus. You do what you want to do. Of it. So <laughs> we get um we get we get the trial. We get Patty Dignum right. Um, like the Patty Dignum this. is the alibi. <laughs> yes. Right, because isn't that the alibi? Right, like no, it wasn't me. I was at a fu- like. What is he even accused of? <laughs> I was at a funeral. So my my I met him psychosis spooks. <laughs> so my thing is right when when Bloom is really kind of faced with the hanging. Right, he thinks of Patty Dignam and the idea of like the real ravages of death, like the kind of monstrous presence of Patty Dignam here. Um, is something that makes his mind go somewhere else. And then we get the positive imagery of him being leader, you know, Pope, all these other things. So there, there is, I think, a kind of way that the, the, the textual, con- the context play is working almost like the stream of consciousness plays in a standard passage where one thought leads to another, leads to another. It's just kind of big set pieces that are doing the same kind of <clears throat> movement. True, but that again is assuming that like all of this, like I think the general arc of the guilt is expressed in this trial. Yeah, I don't for a moment think that Bloom himself is thinking about Patty Dignam at the moment that Patty Dignam shows up. I really don't. I think that some of that is some of that is then Joyce playing with the ideas. Okay, well, then what's going to happen? There's going to be this that it, it, or it's anything. Part, it's a you know, blip. It's it's, it's like part a part of him. It's I mean, it's part of it's him, but I don't think part, I don't think I don't think that Tom Rochford really is going to show up and jump into the coal hole. Like I think a lot. Of, I think this is part of it is drawing attention to just how absurd this is while exploring the horrors that lurk inside ourselves. I mean, this gets us back to, like, what are these hallucinations? I think they are, like, they're com- they're complicated, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I think this, where we talked about this almost being, like, a remix, I think that the not, the, the in the chaos of a, a vision like this, the, the novel starts coughing up things, like, of course Patty Dignam's going to show up there. And if Bloom is even thinking of that, I'm not sure what it, ultimately reveals about him and think it might even be more just like the 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 fun of the the novel itself here's here's why i have a little problem with that because nowhere in the so this chapter is relegated to mostly bloom and some steven you never see the crossover why don't i ever see haynes crop up in bloom's thoughts or or, you know, McCoy crop up in Stevens. There seems to be a kind of relegation of characters and themes yes. to their individual nar- subconscious narrative. Yes and no. There is, it's it's much more permeable than that. I mean, I don't know how much I believe I even what I'm saying beforehand. I think it's just, I think it's too pat to say that every, every character that does show up is going to be able to be revealed in some sort of way as a current, because that's too easy. That's too... I think for Joyce, that's too easy yeah, yeah. as far as like psychoanalysis, young and whatnot. Um, I think he's playing with that idea because why have Stephen actually say words that Bloom said? Why have Bloom say things that only Stephen said? Why have Bloom have visions that happened in Stephen's day? There's dialogue that happens during one of the trials that's dialogue from Skill and Charybdis when Bloom wasn't even on stage. Or wasn't, is there, yeah. I, see, so there I, are I things like that. Examples why, that why is uh, like Bloom, like Stephen's own words in one of his theory 
are said by somebody during one of Bloom's trial. They're actually okay. said. Why is Sissy Caffrey showing up with Stephen? That's a Bloom thing. It's you true. know what I mean? So, right. So I think I think it's. I'm just trying to say, like, you know, I think you can look at these as broad, like in like. Each of these trials is revealing something about Bloom, but not always with Bloom available to that knowledge. You know what I mean? I think it's almost like we are reading this as gods, seeing things that Bloom himself can't even see. So Patty showing up there might reveal something about Bloom, but I just, I can't for a moment think that Bloom himself at this very moment is thinking of Patty Dignam's, I mean, I suppose it's possible, but then there's other things that just make absolutely no sense, like, like. Yeah, the fact that Tom Rochford shows up right afterwards, that seems like that's because Tom Rochford, by the logic of a chapter that spits out characters, yeah. you know, by a sequence, like, well, of course we've got to have Tom jump in that hole. And let me just defend myself a little bit. I, I'm not trying to put an easy, you know, way to uncover the text here. I'm just trying, the farther we get away from that reading, the less meaningful it is to me in terms of demonstrating something about these uh-huh. characters. You know what I mean? If anything's possible at any time, then nothing means anything. Then it is just chaos. I, I, you know I, what I, I mean? know what you mean, yeah. But I think there is a logic, there's, there's the logic of the characters in this, and then there's the logic of the, the god that is at the, the, you know, the master of this creation trying to tame this chaos. And I think that, uh, I think we have to be able to read both of them at the same time to understand this chapter. Is that too no, uh, out yeah, there? No, you know what I, I mean? Think you're right. Because otherwise I think that there would be things, too many things in this that are just random. Like, I just don't yeah. see how this says anything about Bloom. I think it's part of the logic of the what has become the text. Yeah. I think that's right. Okay. <laughs> God, I'm so glad I don't have to listen to any of these. Because I, I would listen to whatever it was I was just trying to say and be like, what the fuck nah, am no I going on about? Don't worry about it. All right, so... So we go through, like, um, Bloom as politician, all this, Leopold I, um, New Bloom, I love the the world's 12 first books. There's so many shit I'm skipping, but I I can't talk about everything. Um, What we get uh, on the other side is what? Um... God, I, we move through a lot of things. We end up with Dr. Mulligan and that kind of thing. <laughs> I love how he's introduced. Dr. Mulligan, sex specialist. <laughs> and, and we get pregnant bloom, uh, 93, 94. Um, so, and, and this is a case of, like, Stephen's world and crouching upon bloom. I mean, bloom has seen Mulligan. He knows him, so it's not that far off, but, you know... Why him? So that, that's what I was thinking, you know, overall. Why does he get to be the kind of um, pronouncer of Bloom? He's not, though. Notice who, who gets the last word. It's Mulligan. Dixon. Well, it's, I'm sorry, go no, ahead. Because doesn't Mulligan comment way back in the earlier chapters about his, his sexual identity? Uh, yeah, he's the uh, yeah, Greek. So, it, made, Greek. Yeah, so yeah. it makes sense that at this point he's yeah. the doctor of knowing these things and makes the <laughs> pronouncement. Yeah, makes sense by the logic of the the book, the not book, the yeah. logic of Bloom, because Bloom has no way of knowing. Right, that. Oh, fact, right, that's right. You're yeah. right. But but the fact that we end with Dixon, who is the only character among these medicals that Bloom actually had had prior uh-huh. experience with, right, by because of the bee sting. You know, I think it's fitting that he is the end. But there again, I think we have in tandem we have the. You know, the logic of the actual, you know, book itself. And then, of course, 
it makes sense to have Dixon as the last word. I like the fact that these are all supposed experts and none of them seem to agree with each other. <laughs> like, you know, the, the verdict of Mulligan after all of that is that he's, he's, yeah, he's still a virgin. Dixon, of course, says he's about to have a baby. Yeah. Maybe <laughs> what, it's a, you know, some about, sort of, uh, you know, uh, you know, birth by a tympanum. What about Joyce's timing with that long speech of Dr. Mulligan? And, you know, I declare him to be Virgo intacta and Bloom puts the hat over his genitals, you know. <laughs> the timing of it all is just cinematic. So, so within all of this, right, I, I mean, you know, we got all of his anxieties. I think at this point, right, this kind of upturn of like, you know, what are we getting? We're getting a sense of his possibilities, you know, in all these these different forms. And I think you're getting the larger thesis of the book laid out in a lot of these little details. Like earlier, I think when he's when he's like the knight figure, Bloom says, or maybe it's a politician, free money, free love, and free lay church in a free lay state, right? Or that's the new Bloomism. Later on, right, Dixon describes him as uh, the new womanly man, yeah. right? These are, I think, all central tenets of the yeah. book. Yeah. But they're being expressed. It's never been expressed so so succinctly as now when we can get into the depths. Because it's and been veiled by the narrative, right? It's right. Been ve- it's been veiled by Bloom, his own... Because Bloom doesn't understand right. himself because no one understands himself right. that well. Joyce can understand Bloom far better than Bloom can understand himself if he were a real person. That's just the kind of limitation of the human experience, I think. This also is just one more way of showing a human being in a 360 degree way, exactly. right? Like, exactly. we've seen him, what does he seem like in a heraldic, you know, sh- tale of chivalry as told by, you know, you know, like like the Knights of the Round Table. Well, here we're getting, you know, what does he seem like if you're stripping away all the rules of, you know, not reality, but like seeing him from every possible angle, like take that mirror and distort it and find some truth in it. You know what I mean? It's just one more perspective. I, I would say this, anytime it is Bloom mm-hmm. saying something or a description of Bloom, there you do see something that is, that it's not out there. It's not for nothing. It's not chaotic. It's not absurd. It doesn't just correspond to a logic of, of the book, right, yeah. as a whole. So I think there you can put your finger on, like, okay, well, why do we see Bloom as, you know, Christ figure? Why do we see Bloom as this? You know, because it really is commenting on you know, aspects of Bloom's character that we've seen. Why do we see Bloom in this utopian way? Because he does have utopian visions of how to make Dublin better. He's always trying to make things better. Yeah. But then again, why do, why does everyone turn on him? Then we're pulling out because, you know, Ireland is the sow that eats its pharaoh, right? Do we have to have uh, Bloom turn into a Parnell figure? First, the church yells at him for being an anything-arian or whatever they accuse him of. And then... I like that Dante has her, her bit there. When he's a bad man, right? Just like Dante turns on Parnell in Portrait. Yeah. Um, all right, so there's... We're, we're moving towards the transition into Stephen, right? About 98, 99. Um, I love the Daughters of Aaron kind of litany of, uh, you know, the prayer... That is um, all kind of uh, epithets for Bloom. Give me the page. Uh, that was 98? 98. Yeah, isn't that, uh, if you look at that, uh, I'm surprised nobody has, maybe they have, but I just haven't found it. Like, trace everything, kidney, calypso, oh, yeah, it's every flower, chapter. lotus, yeah. yeah. Mentum is, Mentum is, is uh, Hades, Hades. Uh, canvasser, Aeolus, 
Charitable Mason pray for us? Uh, maybe because he was thinking about women in childbirth and 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 feeling pity in Lestragonians, right? I guess there. so. That one's not as That's tough. as the other ones. Wandering Soap, soap uh, is Skill and Charybdis. I mean, that's what? a tougher one. Because I thought it was, oh, oh, I went to Wandering Rocks. Yeah, Wandering Rocks is Sweets of Sin, where he sin, actually buys right. the book. Is it Lotus? Oh, no, that's Flower of the Bath, right? Yeah. No, it goes in order. It actually goes well, in the order of the oh, episodes. I the problem with Wandering Soap is that he's, he's not really not it. present. But he does wander in and out. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> uh, music Without Words, Sirens, Reprover of the Citizen, Cyclops, Friend of All Frillies, Nausicaa, Midwife Most Versatile, Oxen, and then, so what is Cersei going to be? Right. Potato Preservative Against Plague and Pestilence. Pray for us. <laughs> Oh, syphilis is a big thing here. Like the we have, you know we're talking about the health of the human body as you know the organ and whatnot of the body through this whole thing. You know, supposedly for this, it's the the thing that actually keeps our coordination. And syphilis can really do a number on every part of the body. Yeah. But one thing syphilis can really attack is the spine and coordination. And so that might be why potato preservative against plague and pestilence. So, I, by the way, I mean by this point in the book. I have no problem calling this postmodern, you know, right? I mean, it, it is literally drawing attention to itself as a text, right? You know, which has to be outside of Bloom's, you know, yeah. even subconscious perspective. Like, you know, this is, I, I don't know why people don't, don't talk, talk about this book as a postmodern text. Because it just doesn't fit their kind of, yeah. you know, pre-World War II, post-World War II narrative. But so this, early. I mean, yeah, so is Don Quixote, you know yeah. what I mean? But there's something about 20th century kind of delineation that that I think just people find this distasteful to put in that category. Well, they probably have so many texts to choose from, right? So doesn't that complicate it? You know, there's so much being written in, in the 20th yeah, not, century. Nothing yeah, this, like this. So I get that. Yeah. Compare, compare this chapter to Portrait of the Artist. It's like it's, yeah. you know, how can you say that those are the same thing? You yeah. you get a little taste of this in Moby Dick, man, with that No, again, that chorus, again but they, I mean, there are these little existence. islands of the past yeah, that have yeah. it, but... Um, you know, when this language is being constructed, you know, it's the 20th century. These are too close to home. Yeah. It, it's ahead of its time. And, and certainly you're going to see it as a, a, a kind of, um, you know, um, prerequisite for postmodern art. But, you know, what is, I mean, we're talking 30 years earlier, right? I mean, yeah. people are still trying to make sense of, uh, you know, the wasteland and, you know, E.E. Um, e. Cummings and stuff like like take E.E. E. Cummings poetry you know that's in some ways like a precursor for postmodern art well it's certainly yeah. a precursor yeah I mean that that's probably what they're just going to take this as you have one chapter of this entire book no I'm saying there's something spe- specifically different about this that yeah you know yeah right it, it references itself you know I mean it if you read that and understand it you're already it's demanding that you live outside of the yeah. experience of the text yeah yeah, and we've already been prepared for that through several times, several yeah. things. But it's it's blown wide open. And Tom's right. I mean, this is you know, ox in the sun is given birth, and this is the this is the baby. Hmm. So is it the case, right? But well, when we get to four ninety nine, right? This is we haven't been in reality for it's a blip. Right, because yeah. think the last thing that was mentioned, Zoe said, "Go on, make a stump speech out of it." Right, and then we get talk away till you're black in the face. It's yeah. almost as though between those two things, nothing happened. All of that. That's why I think it really—it's yeah. a blip. You know, it's 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 a blip. We were, we got into you know aspects of Bloom. If you want to think about that, these are things that Bloom has in his mind that he has somehow daydreamed about at some point, maybe in this very moment, or. 
I'd like to think that it really was just a blimp, that there's infinite worlds contained in our minds that we don't even know. Yeah. Okay, so we transition into Stevens now, I guess, subconscious realm or, you know, into the world of the book, however we want to put it. Um, and, I, I mean, I think we all, the tone changes significantly, right? I, I don't know, the playfulness that's even associated with the darkest aspects of Bloom, I don't think is present in Stephen. Right? Stephen's never been played. It's real, right? Yeah. And and all I'm trying to suggest is that the tone no, mirrors. There is there's other elements of playfulness. There, even there's here. but 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 it's it, it's different. The it's, text's main focus is to kind of capture a sense of their personality. And and Stephen is Stephen's bitter. Exactly. Right. There, yeah. But but the, the playfulness is with the narrative, not necessarily Stephen himself. But for example, you know when uh, you know when. We've got Quaker Lister coming out, followed by Mr. Best, followed by Eglinton. I mean, they're they're hilarious, but it is out of you know envy and bitterness the way they're caricatured. You know, Best being completely you know an innocuous, all surface, can't even determine between Yates and Keats. Yeah. You know, Eglinton talking about we've got to find hard truths, but he looks like this you know stage Chinese uh, stereotype. Perhaps based on yeah. Mulligan's Eggling Don, the chinless Chinaman, or whatever that was. Right, yeah. And then, of course, AE doesn't even show up as AE. AE shows up as Mananan McClear. Yeah. So, That's funny uh, stuff. Yeah, I, I, yeah. <laughs> but it, there's also, like, the end of the world theme, you know, that yeah. that comes in, you know? Um, I mean, where, where Bloom's thinking about a new reality born from, you know, destruction or whatever, Stephen's thinking about. Destruction, apocalypse. And now just think, so remember we were talking about the you know, permeating, permeating well, the, what am I trying to say, the perforations that are between this screen, right? Right, right. right. And it's not Stephen that has any conception of the end of the world being figured as a two-headed octopus with a Scotch accent. That was a snippet of speech that, remember, Bloom heard right. when he was walking around in Lestragonians when he passes AE, right. right? So the fact that this is now... We're kind of in Stephen and Bloom. Stephen is the last one mentioned, so it's not clear like who where these are coming. Like, I'm going to chalk the thing. It's a joke now, but I'm going to chalk that up to metapsychosis yeah. of these two characters. Right. You know? That's yeah. what I was saying before, though, about how it's not always going to be clear like whether these are projections from one mind or the mind of the book. Mm, yeah. I'm, not, I'm just skipping all over the place. I love um, Philip Silver and Philip Drunk. <laughs> like, and I rate that is a kind of, you know... But we're, wait, are we in Bloom by then? We switch back to Bloom. But if that's the case, remember those. that's a figure that yeah. Stephen himself saw in Telemachus, right? Remember what, right. Like, right in the first few pages when he pictures the lawnmower in Oxford and that vision of the boys hazing each other, one of them with Matthew Arnold's face, like... Where is that? That's coming from Stephen, or at least it's coming from that part of the book in which Stephen was featured. Yeah. Before we go to that, one of my favorites is the reimagining of Punch Costello as the Hobgoblin <laughs> yeah. and the well, roulette universe, right? Why him? I was wondering about that. Um, well, we, the Antichrist. Like we have this discussion of like first we have a Reuben J Antichrist coming, but then we have another like monstrosity, like yeah. the Beast. We have to have some sort of Beast. Show it like what's the universe? The universe is just a bunch of roulette balls going around, you know, chants and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And he's the guy in charge. Why French? Because remember, yeah, at one point he's that, because yeah. he's he's <laughs> described as speaking French. Knocks in the sun. Uh, <laughs> I guess. Uh, I mean, that's that's the only imagine. That's all I can imagine. Yeah. 
Well, I don't have anything to say about Philip Drunk and Philip Sober. <laughs> but, um, all right, so, so the next big move, though, is, right, we get the entrance of Bella, right? We haven't got her yet. Give, give me pages. I don't know where we um, are. I'm 527? Uh, you skipped V-Rank. Yeah. Um, well, okay, but, yeah, people yeah. are telling me I have to skip, and then yeah, I have to start skipping, you're complaining. Um, Henry? Henry, oh, yeah, before we go, yeah. before we go, can we just uh, yeah. veering? So that's that's roughly halfway, five fourteen and five fifteen. Yeah, exactly. And I know it's just by accident of the way the text that we are all reading is printed. But everyone look on page five fourteen and five fifteen, and look at the two bloom passages that show up in the midst of all the veering stuff on the left hand side, five fourteen, reflecting wheat and meal mm-hmm. with lycopodium and syllabax. This searching ordeal. It has been an unusually fatiguing day. A chapter of accidents. Wait, I mean warts blood spreads warts. You said... And then skip right over to the immediate right on the next page. I wanted then to have now concluded. Nightdress was never. Hence this. But tomorrow's a new day. Will be past was is today. What now is will then tomorrow is now was be past yester. There's something going on between these. I, I don't even... I'm not even going to make the argument that it is the way they're printed. Because, of course, that's just yeah, by accident. But this is roughly right in the midway point. And it's almost like Bloom at this point. Exhaustion is seeping yeah. in. And he's already thinking of my... You know, what, what is this all about? And he's coming out of the thick of it. Like, he still has yet to experience Bella, but I think this is, like, the midway point, both in the crisis and also in the chapter itself, where he's calling attention to the idea of, I don't even know what t- what's happening with time anymore. Like, time doesn't even exist there's anymore. A, there's a mirroring yeah. at work, right, in the text? I don't know, there seems to be something to it, because those two paragraphs call attention. They, they, they stick out like sore thumbs, unlike anything else said in this with as far as like commenting on the novel itself and what has gone on in the day, you know, by Bloom as spoken word. I don't mean like the, you know, the Daughters of Aaron summarizing the novel in the form of kidneys and soaps and whatnot. So the Bella, you know, is, uh, right, this is maybe the biggest chunk of the text of the, uh, or the biggest kind of set piece of, Hallucination, I think. Henry, who Henry is just Bloom's yeah. letter Henry, name, Henry right? Henry Flower. Yeah. All right. You know, I, yeah, I think <laughs> I might have said this before, but John Berryman's dream songs, he has a Henry that plays out the character in those poems, and the syntax and the inner monologues sound just like Bloom. I, I kind of feel like it, it. It comes from Joyce. Speaking you know? of influences, one yeah. thing I. Just so it makes sure it happens. You know, we, we didn't talk about the debt Joyce owes and says that he owes to Flaubert with the temptation of St. Anthony. You always talk about the Walpurgis night of Walpurgis not knocked of uh, yeah. you know Faust and the Gerta. there's a few other things. Um, um, shit, there's another play that I'm forgetting. Scandinavian playwright not Ibsen. Strindberg? Strindberg. There's a Strindberg play where there's a it's a dream, like a dream oh, state. A dream play. A dream play. I love right. That. I've never that I have no familiarity with. But uh, Temptation of St. Anthony, I read in translation years ago. And and the idea of being on trial like this, some of these visions are taken right from that. Like there's there already is yeah. a precedent for this idea of characters 
being um, castigated and tested in this way, you know, St. Anthony in the desert, you know, all these visions testing his faith, you know, and Virag, what made me think of it was you talking about influence and then passing by Virag, Virag questioning like all those things, like he had 40 fathers, his mother was a whore, you know, that's, that's the idea of like questioning the divinity of Jesus and testing faith, you know, Bloom is being tested in his beliefs through all of this. So it's this, it, even in something that is post- everything you know you if you want to call this postmodern it's still indebted to that tradition of yeah. other authors yeah, you know it's it's yeah oxen and the sun gets at that too right I, I i sensed a great tradition at work from this text blooming out of other things from oxen and the sun well that's that's what you he's know? doing with oxen yeah, and the sun yeah. he's basically showing that uh, i will be the <laughs> the end of all of this all right so bella takes us through you know, all of Bloom's, I guess, hidden sexual desires, right? You get the uh, bondage and domination stuff. You get, you know, the um, the feminization, the, you know, just general humiliation throughout this. Um, so how does this correspond to, uh, this might be too obvious, how does it correspond to the sort of say of Homer in the sense that I mean, I get the obvious, you know, that yeah. that it's making, you know, men bestial, you know, because their desires are more expressed in all of this. Um, but, I mean, it, it seems too pat uh, a way to look at prostitution. You know what I mean? To, I don't know. You know, when they're staring at me, but... <laughs> but he doesn't have to be saying something about prostitution. No, I, I don't think he is. I don't know. It seems that that might seem a little flat to me. I don't know. But it's is just there, one. Is there it's, something? It's, it's, is there something I'm missing about this Cersei in the mythology that connects up to this character specifically? I, I want her to be more than just a kind of symbol of prostitution. You know what I mean? A madam. Yeah. And and I thought the way to kind of get at that was through the witch figure. But I, I don't know what to do with it. I don't know. I mean, he's already doing so much with this that uh, I think that... I'm being that, a dick. That's what you're saying. I think that... Uh, I think it's... I don't know that it's a fair criticism because it... it just because it fits naturally, like turning men into beasts, yeah. like it... I'm okay with that. Like, it's... It works... It works in the, the, the program. You know it, what I mean? You're, you're just... You're it looking does. for a, a richer read. I am. And, yeah. I mean... Why does, I mean, okay, so Cersei's Island is an island only of women, if I'm not mistaken. She's in charge, and she's got three other maids, or four other maids, rather. And so there's only three other whores, but you do have Mrs. Kyo who comes out Mm -hmm. when uh, Bloom needs that further whipping or whatnot, (laughs) or a dirtier piss pot to clean. And so... This, you know, the brothel in which a madam presides is one of these, you know, could be viewed as one of these centers where a woman presides and it's acceptable, you know, like it's, it's expected in Nighttown. And so it's, I mean, that's still more on the nose, like a one-to-one correspondence, but it, it, it seems. I'm not going to find any other, any other analog. Yeah. And it seems, it seems, I mean, I, it's. No, I like what you're doing with just kind of general femininity. This is like a domain of 
women that men are kind of intruders in. And in the men yes. think that men think that they're in charge in this right. brothel, they're not, but they're right. really not. No. Right. And so And and I mean I think that, that might be a little bit um, obvious for us now, but hundred years ago that was that's probably radical. Right? The, the idea that, you know, sex workers have more control than the kind of male fantasy allows for. I, I think let's face it, without Bloom being there, mm-hmm. you know, Stephen would have lost all his money. Right? Like, who knows where... You know, Lynch clearly is not a dependable character. The Ulysses figure in there is is the only reason why those women aren't fleecing Stephen. Mm-hmm. Stephen could no. have been forced to marry no. this. No, I'm just thinking... Oh, I think that's true. Yeah, no, 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 no. I'm, not, I'm not going oh. against that. I, I just think we, we just would on the side, like, really quick, like, say, like, you know, we, we just empowered an entire brothel, and I think around that time, I mean, most... Uh, most prostitution laws were always, you know, they went in favor of the male. So I agree. I think, yeah. so, so no matter what, it's always, it's always, we're always, we have to remember this is the misogynistic uh, society, but there is a slight table. The tables are turned ever so slightly yeah. in this scene. No, th- I yes. agree with you. That, right. That's what yeah. I'm saying. I think it's that might be. I think we just pitched it a second ago. Yeah. Um, I, I'm thinking it's, it's, it's pretty forward thinking of Joyce. It's pretty, okay, it's yeah. pretty yeah. radical for the times. And, you know, I think in 2016, looking too hard at it might be silly. You you know what I mean? Because I'm not putting in proper context. I think that's the point. Yeah, well said. Does Cersei force Odysseus to make love to her? Before she uh, um, lets, lets I don't think he forces. I don't think she forces him. But I, was, I think I was, she, that's part of the deal. Heroically, you know, did one for the team. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, what was well, that? Well, no, he he comes in and remember he's got the molly, right? He's got the herb that yeah. protects him. So right away when when he walks in, she tries to turn him into a pig. I don't think she beds him first and then tries to turn him into a pig. If I'm if I'm not mistaken, yeah, yeah that's right. Right. I think she tries, and then when it doesn't work, and he's going to threaten to kill her, it's like oh, and she turns all the men back into their normal selves, and then he spends. A year in a love nest with her, yeah. and they have children, right? Doesn't the, I, I don't think the Homer talks about that, but further with yeah, the myth does, yeah. I mean, if you that. spend a whole year and Calypso, right? The, the couple of children from Calypso, yeah. right? Talking about spreading seed, father of thousands, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. The um, and speaking of the mole. <laughs> speaking of the mole, that's the potato, right? Uh, that's the most obvious one, but yeah. there's other. Yeah, you know, there's other possible interpretations of things that are considered like. But I like things. I like the backstory of the potato. Yeah. I mean, you're right. That's obvious as a a symbolic you know analogy. But um, but you know that it came from his mother's superstitions and yeah. and you know the idea that she's Irish, right? It's a kind of Irish symbol yeah. that like you know speaks to his identity. I think there's a lot of interesting play with that. Sure, and notice why why are things getting out of hand when he's in the brothel? You know, Zoe's got the talisman. Yeah. Zoe's got it. Yeah. Yeah. Why does she want to keep this shriveled up black potato? Well, because uh, well, is that in reality? Yeah, I think, I think that's a reality. That's yeah, reality. Yeah, yeah, that's oh. part of the banter, right? She's feeling in his pocket, and she feels it and takes it. And well, maybe it's because I mean, she understands its value to him. You know, I mean, it's nothing. Well, to it's, do it's it. manipulating. It's flirting. Sure, yeah. it also seems like the way it's described is kind of a well, gross it, no. old uh, spud. I think it's more than flirting. It's it's the female understanding of the male. You know uh, how you know it's a a real reminder of like you know how easily led they can be or manipulated. Yeah, you don't call that flirting. That's flirting to me. Well, I, I think it's a uh, yeah. I guess so. I don't know how you flirt. 
<laughs> you burn in weird ways. That's okay. I'm not judging. If anything we're learning from this chapter, it's not to judge, right? I mean, I think we're supposed to be okay with... I'm okay with everything. He's wanting to clean piss spots. What do, what do I care? I'm fine. Yeah, I remember one point professing fine, my love to Bloom, and I said, you know, I just read, reread Cersei again. I love Bloom even more after reading no, Cersei. No, no, of course. Because you have to. Like, I, love I, I love Bloom. Yeah. I love Bloom. Right. All right, what else we have here? I mean, Stephen, we, we talked about it a little, but the Stephen mother, you know, thing coming up is... It's pretty shocking. <laughs> a saint couldn't resist it. The demon possessed me. Besides, who saw? Staggering Bob, a white-polled calf, thrusts a ruminating head with human nostrils through the foliage. Oh, that's, yeah, you were wondering where's the, where's the bloom masturbating. That's it, right there. Yeah, that's him doing it. Well, no, that's the, that's what that's talking about. Remember, he's yeah, like, who, yeah. who saw me? I like that Staggering Bob has made several appearances in this. <laughs> Just shows up. All right, so... I don't know. <laughs> Can I just go back to... Yeah, yeah I'm sorry. This is making it even longer. That's okay. Um, five, I four, just skipped like 50 pages. Like, Well, you, you yeah. kind of have to. I know you have to. I um, mean, a lot of this recovered, you know, like... I mean, I think it's an incredible work of imagination, all of the new ways we can kind of uh, explore his sexuality. But part of... I think so where I thought like maybe exploring death in multiple ways in Hades or exploring food in multiple ways unless you're going and got tedious I never think it does here even though there's and maybe it's because the subject matter is more titillating I don't know but um but it seems to work um the kind of ratcheting up you know what I mean uh because I think each of those steps get at some aspect of his character where maybe it was I don't know, just a little too navel-gazing in those other chapters for me. I didn't feel like that. That's know. okay, though. The problem is you don't have a heart. I'm, I'm allowed to critique Joyce, you know what no, I mean? No, 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 no. And still love him. You know, I feel like I feel like you think, like, if, if you have a little criticism... No, 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 uh, no. You like the intellectual ta- chapters. You like the heady chapters. I like the ones that have the pathos that tie me to that guy. Yeah, that, that, that could be. Cause and because yeah. you're a smart dude, but you just oh, don't have you. a heart. Maybe. <laughs> I, so, not, the, not the worst thing that's ever been said to me. <laughs> what were you saying, Josh? Seven. <laughs> 541 yeah. uh, is one of those uh, heart-wrenching moments where this is just after Bellow has described Boylan and what's going on right now in 7 Eccles Street and uh, Bloom at the bottom of 541 to drive me mad. Maul, I forgot. Forgive. Maul, yeah. we... Still, you know, the idea of the hope of still having a child, mm. right? Isn't that how you take that? Yeah. In that moment, you have these glimpses of genuine sadness that come out of these farcical descriptions that catch you. Like this one caught me up. I would, you know, not, you're not expecting it, something who, like that. Who shows up on the next page? Millie. Yeah. Well, Millie, remember, interestingly enough, shows up in a similar way in Oxen. When he's contemplating the loss of Rudy, but then thinks of Millie, like, why am I not thinking of Millie to carry on my, you know, lineage? But here, it's it's interesting because it's, once again, Bloom is conflating Molly and Millie. And, 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 and it's happened a number, a number of times. And Bello <laughs> calls him out on it, just like we've been saying, like, what does this mean? Bello, that's your daughter, right. you Al, with a Mullingar student. Like, he he doesn't seem to... Remember, what does he say? At one point in the novel, he says, Millie is just Molly watered down. Right? Like, there, there's, there is something interesting going on there that he can't seem to, like, he conflates his own daughter with. But, I never get the sense that there's something, you know, 
It's not lecherous. It's not lecherous, no, but there is, yeah. some, there is clearly something that is odd, at least to my sensibility, you know, that, that, that he so easily conflates the two. Or not that it's odd, it just shows that it's not the connection that he wants with the male child. Right? Like, it seems... Yeah. I don't know. I, I, I always got the sense that it hovers somewhere too close to the salacious, and that's why all of a sudden you, you, you kind of get the, 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 the hint of, um, yeah. of incest. In well, look, I mean, there is a world of smut out there that has to do with incest. Yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. Look, and, and we're, we're in the depths, and, you know, it, it's probably something that, you know... I, I don't have a kid, I don't know, but, but that... Crosses your mind. It's not anything you'd speak of in public, but you know. Wait a minute. We've this is let the place we're kind of fishing in. We've let Bloom off the hook on so many levels, right? Suggesting that he somehow was, you know, more in touch with himself than perhaps most men. We called him the Uber Man early on, right? You know, we say he can cross dress. We say he can watch uh, Molly having sex with other people. He can do so much. Why can't he look at his daughter as, um, let's say, you know, not an object? Of sexuality, even though she's tied to something that is for him, I, I, I think I, I think he is doing that. I don't think he's ever watching Molly have sex. Although, in the fantasy in of this. the picture, yeah, but that's not that's like a, a vision. That's a fantasy yeah. that either he is seeing or not, or that we're. How, how do you seeing. know it's not going to happen? <laughs> True. Um, and then also you have the picture of uh, Molly with the Toreador, or at least he's accused right. of that. I don't know. I, I think I, I think I'm more with Dave on this that he it's it's close enough to be to draw attention to it, but I think he, it's just that he is different in that he can look at his daughter sexually without you know without the actual lust of it, but actually she yeah. is a sexual being. She will be a sexual being. Also, I think there is something to the fact of the whole Rip Van Winkle thing here. I was just uh, going to say, the yeah, the idea is he's he's looking at this who he thinks is his wife, but then he's old. That was that was an anxiety of now Sika, where he realizes that he's old at this point, and well, that's I what Bello calls out too. Right, Bello almost like uh, damns him, like you know. Like, no, you, like, he goes towards Molly and she says, no, you're Rip Van Winkle, right? Yeah. And, like, like whisks him away to a kind of sleep. And I love that Sleepy Howl gets the comment as well. <laughs> yeah, dude. It's so fucking brilliant. Um, Rip Van Winkle, Rip Van Winkle, right? Um, but, you know, that is the tension of their, you know, him trying to move towards her. And what? This kind of, his sense of a monstrous femininity keeping... Him away, right? Because that's what Bello is, yeah. right? It, it's it's all of his sexual anxieties kind of placed in a female form put before her, and and you know this isn't said explicitly, but who's going to feel the the who's going to feel the pain of that kind of unconscious expression? It's going to be Molly. You know what I mean? There is some... Wait, of whose unconscious expression? Of Bloom's. You I, was, know I, mean? I was thinking These Billy. things exist in him. Yeah. Right? And they, they demonstrate a lot, so a little resentment, right? I mean, as much as we think, like, you know, ah, he's free thinking and all this, right? He resents having to to, to feel the, the guilt and pain that go with, you know, the but rejection and in, all but this. But it's very deep. It's very deep, right? Yeah. And so... It must be coming out, you know, in that relationship. You know, certainly coming out by the lack of sex, but it's probably coming out in in hostile ways too, you know? The idea that that a woman can have so much power to just whisk him out of his desires, like like this little sequence demonstrates, I think says a lot. How about the idea also that he's not the father to Millie, that, you know, maybe he should be 
Josh brought up before, he keeps thinking about Rudy all the time. Millie's almost a kind of afterthought in some ways. I don't know. She, I don't, I don't know that she's... It, yeah, see, yeah, it almost seems as though he's so progressive with Millie in that the fact exactly. that she has a, she's 15 years old and she's already out of the house and has a job. You know, it's... It, I don't get the sense of absent father. I get yeah. more the sense that he's just not connected to her because okay. they're he, writing, they're writing she has together. her own life. You know? yeah. yeah. Okay. Like, like they have a special relationship, right? She's not, she's writing letters to him specifically, not yeah. to them collectively. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I get the impression that they're close. Yeah. But what I meant by that is, Millie is not going to be like there, there is a f- little feeling of hope in that, that episode of, I think it's in the uh, diary of an opium eater one, the De Quincey yeah. chapter of oxen where that vision of the, you know, the, 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 one of the Pleiades going through the galactic winds with her scarf simply swirling and what is clearly Millie. There is a little bit of hope there, but it's, it's not, it's not Rudy. Like it's not what he has lost. Yeah. And look, let's face it. There is genuine tragedy in the loss of the child, but there's more than just the loss of Rudy. It's the loss of the connection that he had with Molly ever since then. Right. And so, you know, he, he's not going to get that back. So that's what he's always searching for. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, let's, let's move towards the end. <laughs> so Steven s- smashes Sorry. the lamp, right? We get all of that, the kind of chaos or, you know, great crescendo of, uh, of the evening. And um, he kind of whisks off into the streets. Now, I, I think right things change here, right? We go back from... Oh, I'm sorry, that? real quick. Yeah. Er, a little bit earlier, um, Zoe asks Stephen what day you were born. He says Thursday, and then he says today. Is today his birthday? No. No, I don't I think, think he's so. just saying on a Thursday. Today is Thursday. Okay. But, I, I, wasn't, I was thinking, like, is June 17th his birthday? Uh, I, I think Joyce is born on Thursday. So I think, it's, okay. I think it All is right. the... I think the Stephen character is getting close to the Joyce character. Got it. Oh, you know what was interesting, too? But while I'm thinking of random things, um, Josh mentioned weeks ago about Stephen... Um, not being able to see properly. I think it was during Proteus, right? Yeah, the 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 very brief idea that like he's broken his glasses, yeah. he needs new ones. I had completely forgotten that Amazing. until I was reading something, uh, and they mentioned. And as we learned in Cersei, Stephen wasn't even wearing glasses. Like, oh, when I saw gosh, it this time, yeah. I was like, oh man, that's amazing, yeah. right? Because that puts so much into focus. But, no pun intended. Like uh, some of these other. But then, what is Joyce? What does Joyce say when he brings that up? Just in case we forgot the significance of him not having glasses in Proteus. Stephen brings the match nearer his eye. Link's eye must get glasses. Broke them yesterday. Sixteen years ago. Distance. The eye sees all flat. That should be enough to make you think Proteus. But then he draws the match away. It goes out. Brain thinks near far. Ineluctable modality of the visit. Uh, <laughs> it's like, all right, we get it, Joyce. We get it. We're supposed to go back to Proteus and realize oh, that's why he's so focused on vision because he's stumbling around. He can barely see him, that his hand in front of him. Yeah, and it strikes me, you know, it brings us back to Portrait Chapter One. And, and we just had Father Dolan Breaking his glasses and dealing with Dolan. That's what you we know. get it on page. Yeah, it's got to yeah. come up, right? And then the, that's there's more going on there as well because. Remember, this is where they're looking at hands, and you know, Bloom talks about how he's got like an accident. You know, he had an accident 16 years ago when he was 22, and Stephen, like, oh my goodness, see, moves to one great goal. This is on page 563, which is DZ's view of history, right? right, right. I am 22 too. 
16 years ago, I, 22, tumbled. 22 years ago, he, 16, fell off his hobby horse. He winces. Hurt my hand somewhere. Must see dentist. Money. But the idea of the connection of Bloom through the numbers. You know, Stephen likes the elegance of the numbers. He could probably doesn't care at all about any connection to Bloom, but it's it's a nice kind of symmetry. But I had always read that hurt my hand somewhere thinking that, God, he's still thinking of the pain he felt from the panty bat. <laughs> yeah, Not literally, but yeah, like yeah. a memory. But that's the first time, or, or at least maybe the second time about him mentioning his hurt hand. But then it keeps going on and on, which is why the theory comes up that maybe he actually struck Mulligan yeah, in between. it. How about the boiling scene on the next page? That, that makes me cringe. I wanted to fight him. <laughs> well, yeah, he's he gives him money for a splash, a uh, gin and splash. And, and by the way, that's not boiling. That's Bloom's, Bloom's vision boiling, yeah. of boiling. You right, know what I mean? Right, right, right. So, <laughs> you can't get mad at the guy. But what's fascinating is, did, has Bloom spent so much time with Lenahan to know Lenahan's salacious, ah, lobster and mayonnaise? <laughs> oh, <laughs> I know. So that's, that's one of those things that makes you think, is it really a projection of Bloom's, or is it a projection of the novel of exactly what should be said at that moment? Well, it's by, weird, because at that point, the novel does want us, I think, to believe that that's a possibility, or a probability, I think. And, and also, there's no bad. way to know, like the, like Nina Kennedy and and Lydia Deuce, like the fact that they're sad initially, looking at Boylan, the conquering hero, because they're jealous and they want Boylan. There's no way Bloom would have. Oh no, that's actually not true. Bloom was watching them watch Boylan. Yeah, yeah never mind. Take that back. <laughs> With paralytic rage, Weta Seca will kill a farst. Yeah, that's Shakespeare's line. It's good, man. All right, let's uh, go back to. I tried to do like 15 minutes ago. So, the, um, that's fine. Hey, no rules here, man. Um, so the, so it starts with a kind of masculine, like if we put this in like edible terms, right? It starts with kind of bloom and masculine anxieties, him dealing with the watchman, right? Then we get into the feminine anxieties in the brothel and we end coming out of, you know, Josh's reverse iceberg uh, theory here <laughs> with more masculine anxieties and conflicts with the um, the soldiers and, right, all of this. Um, what was my point? I had a point. So, well, first of all, I mean, that, that kind of speaks to a kind of hierarchy of his anxieties, right? You know, what he real, you know, th- this is a text where he has been kind of uh, butting up against men the whole time, but it's really women that are on his mind. You know, right. it, it's if you saw Bloom in action, you wouldn't understand that. You know, it's only through his mind that you get his real self. Well, you Find see, that? you see it in Sirens when he won't partake in a lot of the action that's going on, right in the pub and the tavern. He kind of sets himself off from the rest of the group. Yeah. I mean, he's kind of... Uh, and you see but, it in Lestragonians. But I think that's what you're saying, that's right? Like, saying. That's, that's right. exactly what he's saying. Or Like that bloom... The, there is that anxiety of, of how, how to interact with a masculine peer group. It's, yeah. it's just something that he is, one, avoiding, but two, doesn't seem to have an interest in, per se, but then is missing the camaraderie, like he needs some sort of connection. He's hunting for some sort of connection. They also outcast him too, though. At times yeah. he has tried to get involved and right. listen to him, right? But by by the end, like when Bloom, like once he comes out of that confrontation with the nymph as the nun and things start getting 
more like grounded reality. This is when we start having the Steven projections, right? Bloom is by that point in control, right? Exactly. So, so the yeah. when when Steven is out on the street, and what could be an issue of you know issues of masculinity and what to do. Bloom always does the right thing. Mm-hmm. Bloom is trying to pull Stephen away. You know, Bloom does everything short of getting up in Private Carr's face and like stopping him. Right? He does when the cops show up and the drunk assholes are saying he was threatening us and my girl. And Bloom gets right up, like, no, no, he was not. Like, take down that guy's regiment number. Like, he's he's asserting himself. Bloom has conquered his demons by that point. Yeah, right. I think so. Bloom has yeah. done like. He's he's had his cathartic experience. He's had the Aristotelian yeah. catharsis by that point. It's not as dramatic no. as Cyclops, but it's not right. dissimilar. Is that right. the true coming of a father? Well, wait, let me wait. So yes, <laughs> I would say, but to answer your point, <laughs> the catharsis is not reached in Cyclops because he gives in to he he loses in Cyclops because he gives in to that kind of anger. He doesn't he allows okay. the yeah, 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 Cyclops right. to almost get the better of him, which is why he's up there on that jaunting car, you know, yelling. I mean, I think the true bloom would be like the true bloom is the bloom in now Sika and the true bloom is the bloom of, you know, in this when he's on his stump speech as the you know, primate, emperor, president, king of Ireland or Blue Muslim, where he says, and there will be no blowhard, you know, dumbass politicians in bars talking silly shit. I can't remember his exact words, but remember, <laughs> he calls out the citizen and that's, that's the bloom we want, the strong bloom. It'd say like, you know, your, your nonsense is just empty wind. I'm out of here. Yeah. Whereas here he actually, you know, succeeds, right? Would you say that's yeah, no, right? I, I think that's yeah. right. Yeah. Uh, I wasn't thinking along those lines, but. You know, um, because the, yeah. now we have Bloom in, for the rest of the novel. We have Bloom in control, Bloom and, making decisions. Eumaeus is Bloom taking Stephen right. under and, his wing, and Bloom shows up here. It's almost like once Bloom is able to work out that kind of inner problems that come up in the first, let's say, three quarters of Cersei. Now Bloom is the kind of father role. He's the caretaker to Stephen. What happens once he does that? The mother shows up. You know, and all of a sudden, Bloom's identity kind of shifts and changes. I don't know. I thought that was a really poignant moment. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what the connection is to why the mother shows up at that point. Other than for me, it just seems like because now that now that Bloom has conquered his demon, what about Stephen? Like Stephen is also going. Oh, Stephen also yeah. has to go through yeah. Bloom, the trial. Bloom, it's almost like Bloom conjures her. Yeah, you know, it's maybe. like Bloom brings her to Stephen because now now he can be a father and he can impart what he's done himself onto Stephen to allow Stephen to kind of work through his own demons, which include women and his mother. And but Stephen doesn't. Stephen doesn't. No, Stephen, Stephen brings about the Gotter Marung or whatever, yeah, right. yeah, <laughs> the right. end of the world. Right. You know. no, and that's that's what I meant by a huge total Stephen's yeah. not ready for it. Stephen's off on his own journey too, right? right? And we'd you like know? to think that maybe there's potential sure. for Bloom to, to lead him that way. Who can, knows? But Can I get highfalutin? Sure. Stephen has to die. Stephen embraces death, right? Stephen, Stephen destroys the world, right? He brings about the downfall of the gods. We have a real apocalypse at this point. We have, you know, the, a black mass. We have, and then ultimately Stephen does die, right? Is Stephen is, no, no, in here. Oh. Miss the black mass? No, no, black no. mass is awesome. No, the mass. Uh, yeah, so, um, with the... You're still in the fantasy world. I'm still yeah, in the fantasy. Yeah, I'm still yeah, with yeah. the, you know, with the backwards, uh, you know, dog yeah. and god right. and all that. So Stephen, then lying crouched there, what is he, when Bloom's hovering over him, 
Steven sees Bloom, sees the black that he's wearing. Bloom is right up in his face. Yeah. He's the vampire. He's the mouth to his mm-hmm. mouth kiss. Mm-hmm. He is, he's wearing black. And he begins to sing or at least recite the song that he sang to his mother when she died. Mm-hmm. It's like there he's finally embracing you know, his mother and death and whatnot. And at that very moment, we have the rising from the ashes of Rudy... And now we have Stephen reborn. Now, granted, he's reborn into a hellish state of what Eumaeus will be when we read Eumaeus. Tom. Dave said before about the birthday comment, I thought it had sort of multiple meanings. This is, this is Stephen's birthday. Maybe. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah maybe. Yeah. Oh, so. yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the, you guys are right. I mean, if you think about it, there, it is an odd way to say, you know, when when is the, on what day were you born? Thursday. Today, it does it sound like it leaves it open. It yeah, does have yeah. a double meaning. And, 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 you know, in, in the real biography of Joyce's life, what day is this? And in, in a yeah. way, this is it's a, a rebirth. It's yeah. a rebirth yeah. of his life because of his, his relationship that he'll have. Yeah. And so I was wondering about Corny Keller, right, and why he's the guy that's going to smooth things over and all this. It's because he's a gravedigger, right? Yeah. Because he can exhume them. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I, I just came up with that. I don't know, yeah. you know. Well, there's there's two levels, right? On the level of the narrative, why does Corny have those crumbs? Remember the crumbs we were wondering about? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's because he's taking these dudes on. Like, remember they said, what, is somebody having a picnic here? He probably has a side job of, like, taking people to Nighttown, right? Right, right. In those very <laughs> carriage cars. Oh, and he's also like, he's like he's like a taxi service. Yeah, for, I think he's I think he's got like he's making extra money oh, here. But also, you know, he is he, when he's first introduced before even the funeral in Lotus Eaters, Bloom comments he's got connections with the police. You know, he's a police yeah. informant, and then right. we see him in Wandering Rocks as an actual police informant. So on the level of narrative, it works perfectly because as Bloom says, you're just the guy. But I, yeah, I think you're onto something. Like you have this. Almost like a, a Hermes. Oh, great. Think. Who gives Odysseus the molly? Hermes. It's Hermes. Hermes. What is Hermes' primary job other than messenger of the god? Psychopompus. The one who actually conducts souls to the dead, of souls of the dead oh, yeah. to the underworld, right, right. and is the only one who can lead souls of the dead out of the underworld. Joe, that's really good. Yeah. You, you didn't do shit. <laughs> no, you're the one that was thinking. Like, you were the yeah, man. I like that. Yeah, I don't know. Um... <laughs> Yeah, it makes sense. I'm good. <laughs> um, so, and that just leads us to the last images of Rudy, which we talked about a little bit. But um, you, you know, there's something particularly haunting about the idea of that he's 11. Yeah. You know what I mean? That it's not just um, it's not just the idea of your dead son. It's the potential, the visual potential of all the time that you've lost. You know what I mean? And it's tough, right? Because that is completely imaginative, right? Bloom has no evidence of that. Not in the story of the Odyssey. What right? do you mean? Well, in the story of the Odyssey, we see how much time apart Odysseus well, has spent, right? Well, no, and that, that's interesting, right? Because Odysseus can go see Telemachus and see that realized. Yeah. Bloom can't, right? right? And that's going to move Stephen and Rudy together mm-hmm. and kind of, you know, as a potential for Bloom in terms of, the, you know, fulfilling his idea of paternity. Right. Yeah. Um, so in a sense, Telemachus becomes the Rudy-Stephen hybrid, right? Yeah, and, and that's, I mean, that's what we see right before our eyes. We <clears throat> right. have, you know, Stephen prostrate on the ground, 
Bloom's standing over him, and then Rudy materializes right yeah. in there. I mean, the way the text moves is is beautiful, getting all those, um, the ideas, and just the single, you know, Rudy, you know, with the exclamation point as a kind of, I don't know, I, I, I almost take that as like, an, like a sad awe or something, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, it is, the, it's the last word uttered in the whole play, Rudy. Yeah, of, of a right, spoken yes. word uttered yeah. in this, this episode. As, as though to remind us, like what, what is this all about? It's it's about you know fathers and sons and loss and so attempt to recover. So I want. So what is I'm confused by the end. Why do we have language attributed to Rudy that isn't you know? So you could have these stage directions in the parentheses that describe what's being you know related here. Um, Rudy's actions, gazing at Bloom and all of that, but and it, it's put oddly, right? Because it's put as if he is going to say something and speak that never happens. Rudy? Yeah. I don't think so. He's reading. He's reading the Torah. Here? He's reading He's reading from right to left. He's reading in Hebrew. But we're right. not hearing the voice. He reads from right to left inaudibly, smiling, kissing the page. So he's reading the Torah. Yeah. Right? Or something that is, you know, in Hebrew. Gazes unseen into Bloom's eyes and goes on reading. He never says anything. No, that's my point. Yeah, oh. My point is, we could have all... We could put the root word Rudy inside those parentheses and actually be more accurate in terms of how a play functions. The only reason you distinguish um, what character is going next is because there's speech. There's dialogue attached to it. But there's no dialogue here. But it's posed as if there will be. And it's silence. Oh, I see what you're saying. So what, what you're you're calling attention to the very last stage direction. Exactly. It, it, but it is it is describing what he's doing and what he's got. You're just saying I that it would have been it would have been more appropriate just to have the last direction gazing unseen into Blue's eyes and goes on reading, kissing, smiling, because those are the those I'm not are, suggesting it's appropriate or not. I'm saying that this must be purposeful because there's not another um, name designation yeah. in 200 pages that doesn't have dialogue attached yeah. to it. Well, the, the, thing, the, the point of a name designation is to have dialogue. Exactly. And, and all it is is something parenthetical. Well, I think the idea I, that yeah, it doesn't respond, it, Rudy doesn't respond to him. Yeah. You know? He can't respond. Exactly. He, he can't exist. respond. Yeah. You know, and you get the image of Hamlet's father kind of drifting away from him. Yeah. Like it's the leaving of a soul. You know, I didn't... What we're left with is the vision, the fictitious vision of Bloom that wants him to speak, but will be ultimately fruitless. Oh, that's really good. I never, I didn't even pick up on that. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Because you're right. Like, when you were saying inside the parentheses, I wasn't even really listening to what you meant by that. You're saying there's no... The, it should all, say parentheses. All caps Rudy, Rudy should not be yeah. there. It should be in the parentheses, Rudy Gaze. Oh, it's so good. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's sad. That's sad. It's pathos. It, I would say that is bad. <laughs> That's correct. <laughs> All right. Hence, we are finished with the first two Jeez. sections of Ulysses. Right. And then we enter the third section. Um, the Maliad, right? Is that what we call it? No, it's usually called like the, the Nostos. Penelopead or the Nostos. <laughs> the I've heard it called the Maliad, I think. Yeah, yeah. even yeah. though she she's not. Am I making that up? In, uh, making that what's up, up, what's up with Lord Tennyson's threads? <laughs> He's a rhymester. <laughs> so I like yeah. how he makes that brief appearance. <laughs> yeah, or, or the, ours yeah, is not to. <laughs> right. 
Art is not the reason why. Right? That's, that's is not the really reason Tennyson, why. isn't it? I'm not a fan of Tennyson. It's the Charge of the Light Brigade. Yeah, right? Yeah. Um, all right. Wow. This, is a, this is a long one, nice. but uh, I think uh, I think we did good. All right. So next time, you menace. You menace. You menace. <laughs> <laughs>